Hello everyone, Demetrius Gelatis here with me. I've got in the car, Josh Burva. Yeah, so this is, uh, we're here with the Cue It Up Network. Uh, we are recording, this is a new, new thing for us. So if you hear a little background noise, it's because Josh and I, we're, we're road players. <laughs> we're, we're, on the, we're on the road. So we're coming back from the U.S. Open. And uh, we thought, you know, we have a, we actually drove um, and so we have about a, we have a very long drive. So we thought we, this would be a good time while it's fresh and hot to kind of talk about uh, our experience at the U.S. Open a little bit. You uh, can go from there. Yep. I'm glad we didn't do this after I busted out. I got, I've had a few days to, to, to settle down over it. So yeah. this is the perfect like, timing. Like, uh, okay, like that one. <laughs> when we were watching, I, now I'm getting all out of order. I wasn't even to bring this up, but one of my favorite moments was when we were watching, uh, gosh, man, Dennis Grave was playing. Who, do you remember, was he, who was Dennis Grave playing that eliminated him when he just made the final 16? Chua. Chua. That's, okay, I thought that was him. So he was up 10-8, and uh, Dennis Grave misses a run out, like he blows a run out, and uh, couldn't complete the rack. And then Chua runs out to go 10-9, runs out to get to the hill, and then at 10-10, Chua runs the table up to the seven ball, and it looks like uh, it looks like Dennis's miss at 10-8 is going to cost him the, the tournament. And then Chua runs up to the seven ball, gets himself hopelessly out of line, and dogs the seven. And the nine's on the rail, so there's no way to get beyond the nine. And the seven ball bounced all over the table. The cue ball was in the middle of the table, and the seven ball rolled up and stopped behind the eight, where he had to kick. And then, so then Dennis is just like. Here he is on the hill. Dennis Graves on the hill, and he's got a kick at the seven ball now, and he kicks and hits it, and looks like he's going to leave a real tough shot, but the cue ball trickles into the corner and scratches, and uh, Chua taps him in. So so Dennis missed 10-8, and then uh, when his opponent missed back on the hill hill, he gets hooked behind the low on eight ball. So why did I bring that up? Because right as we're watching, Jason Shaw came up and watching alongside of us, and he was giddy, man. He's like Jason gets as giddy as I do, and he's sitting there watching, and he's like, oh, did you see that? That's the only ball he could get behind. And he's just giddy, and finally, uh, and I feel kind of bad. Like, I'm not I'm not dogging Dennis Grave at all, by the way. Dennis, if you ever hear this, like, great tournament. You're a hell of a player. But uh, after after Dennis Grave lost, he was like, he sat down in a chair in the corner of the arena. He pulled his jacket over his head, and uh, and Jason's like, yeah, it'll be a few months before he gets that one off, his, before he walks that one off. So, anyway, that was just a little flashback to... Uh, that's how it feels when you go out of the tournament, right? God, that was that was brutal. I mean, that was just sick, sick to watch. And uh, all I felt was for Dennis, man, like how how devastating that was. Like he he's from another country, right? He flew all the way over here to play, and yeah. and it was just it just shows how how difficult the game is, man, and how heartbreaking it can be. And yeah. So. Well, good job. So Dennis here says, good job, man. Final 16, and uh, I'll tell you what, he's playing really, really good pool. So I'm actually looking forward to seeing, you know, a couple of years ago I didn't know who he was. And so uh, now I'm trying to, like, backpedal and say good things about it. Like, the fact is is that he's really coming out of the scene, and uh, he's he's it's going to be fun to watch over the next couple of years. Yeah, he's I know, an incredible player. I know stuff like that is, like, that's just a pit stop along the way to what he's about to do. So anyway. Okay. I was. I think I was one match away from him doing that to me. Oh yeah. <laughs> I think if I would have won my second round, I think I would have played Dennis in the third round. That's cool. So yeah. Okay. So quick lineup today. Uh, we are going to be talking about a, a little bit of a recap, not just on how we did out there at the Open, but uh, also just some funny stories that happened along the way. Uh, a little, you know, and then uh, we also have a topic of conversation that uh, uh, has to do with 
uh, kind of a, a trap that people can fall into that, that impacts their their uh, continued growth. I'm, I, I'm calling it side quests. Uh, diversions that people get kind of misrouted onto. And we're going to have some fun with that. So, But first, um, you know, I've always got to plug my boot camp. Uh, and I'll, I think this one's going to be fairly short. I just want to tickle it. Uh, I'm at Minnesota Pool Bootcamp, mnpoolbootcamp.com. I do three-day training sessions. So for anybody, uh, does, you don't have to be around my area uh, because flights are cheap. You fly in, and I pick you up at the airport, bring you to my house, and we spend three days devoted to breaking down your game and you know putting together a plan that's going to get you where you want to go and then, and then executing on that so that you leave... You know, we don't just plan it. We start training and we keep training and we train and train. You're a better player by the time you leave and you have a clear path of where you want to go. But the one one thing I want to say about that too, I was I was talking to actually a, a guy called me today and it looks like we're going to be doing a boot camp soon. So thank you and I'm looking forward to that. But um, it was interesting because we were talking about putting together a game plan and that everyone has a budget of time and energy. And so the thought I wanted to share with everyone today about that was, you know, there's things that could work and there's things that will work. And I guess it's one of those things I was thinking about with them. I'm like, you know, when you have a plan where it's like, well, my plan is to go play sometimes when I feel like it and then try real hard when I play. And if I do that for a while, hopefully I just win something. It's like, well, that plan could work. But I guess what was on my mind was like, there's things you can do that just will work. Like, well, if I get the right information and the right direction and I work on the right things, enter the right number of competitions, spar with the right number of people for the right number of hours, then, like, I want to plan for somebody where it's like, if I do these things, there is no possible other outcome except for me getting where I want to go. And that's to me, is a good game plan. Like, it, it's, it, it's one of those things where... You know, you don't. It's, I want to take the mystery and the mysticism out of pool, where it's like, oh, there's these winners and there's losers and there's people that somehow have it, and I don't know if I'm one of the people that has it or not. So I'm like, no, I want a game plan where it's like, yeah, if I do that, of course that's gonna go. I'm gonna get that. And then what I said to him is, I said, you know, when you have a good game plan like that, the only disappointing thing is it takes some of the surprise out of like when you get to your goals. By the time you, you do everything on your that you need to do, it's like, well yeah, of course I got there. It's not even like a surprise anymore because it's not some, it's not some slot machine. <laughs> I'm thinking Atlantic City. But anyway, it's just, it's kind of like, well, obviously, you know, if I rub these two sticks together long enough, there's going to be a fire. And it's just kind of takes all the mystery out of it. But while you may not have that same sense of surprise, you will feel the same sense of satisfaction. So that was my that was my throwaway line was you may not be surprised when you hit your goals if you have a good game plan, but it's just as satisfying. In fact, more satisfying because you actually get there. So anyway, that's what I do. Three day pool bouquet. Anything you wanted to say about that, or what are your thoughts on that, Josh? No, I I, I mean you nailed it. I was in the car when you were running running the call, so I heard it, and it's awesome. And I was giving you knuckles, and yeah, I mean it's really really good approach that you have, and and. Uh, ideas about how to improve and what to, how to set your sights and that becomes more of a process-based kind of mindset which is awesome and uh the only thing i was thinking though dumb was a uh, shout out to terry you're you speaking of boot camp and your students like he, he flew out um from canada terry can you say his last name or no is it well terry knows who he is yeah so, yeah terry terry your student came out and and uh sweated some matches and uh 
we, we were able to watch some matches with him and, and we went and I played some snooker with him and it, uh, at the local club there and it was fun so hey Terry thanks for thanks for hanging out it's awesome seeing you yeah yeah really good to see you Terry yep so cool so then uh, we uh, so what we're not gonna do everybody and I'm sorry but I'm sure that uh, Nate and uh, you know we'll be doing a his podcast and I might even be a part of it where it's more focused on like the U.S. Open overall, like how Matchroom did uh, and what the event was like for the players and, and, and then, you know, decisions breaking, on rules. And yeah, and breaking yeah. breaking down, like, you know, the, the victors and how they play. But what we're doing is a little different. We just wanted to kind of like, I've been getting some, some questions from people about how I did and what how things went for me and Josh. And so I just thought we'd tell our story of kind of like, our, this is so this is not Matchroom review and this is not uh, Carlo Beato, uh, you know, breakdown. This is just like, how Josh and I did at the U.S. Open, and and what went well, what didn't go well, and some of our some of the funny things that happened, and some of the things we're going to take away that we are going to use as feedback to try to get where we're going, and then we're going to have our conversation topic about side quests. So that's what's <laughs> I don't know. good when you whisper it. <laughs> okay, I'll make sure I, I keep doing that. So the U.S. Open. So Josh and I drove out. We left, and uh, and it, I don't know that anything really interesting happened on the drive. I think we're just gonna bypass the. See, you guys get the fast four. We we didn't. We, we had, had to, to live it. We had to live it for three days or two yeah. or three days. Yeah. The tolls. All I can tell you is we paid. We paid our share of. Uh, our if tolls. you if you if you guys find yourself on a turnpike on the east coast that's particularly well paved, you're welcome. Okay. Um, and we so, did stop and play along the way. Just as a heads up, we stopped in Beloit. We played a little bit there. Like you and I kind of trained together and practiced. We stopped at a private club in. Oh yeah, yeah. Cleveland, I think. Yep. And that was kind of cool. Um, and then we stopped in uh, Philly. We played at Fusco's Room. Yeah, we went to Fusco's Room. Yeah. That and then fun. that's the only action we got. I got some nine ball action with a local guy, and you got some one pocket action. Yeah. That was good. And then uh, by the, the, the right after that, we were in Atlantic City. So that's your fast forward. There you go. Trip. Yep. Now we're in Atlantic City. Yeah. And yeah. So, so then, which way do we want to go from here? Um, Let's do the funny stories first. The funny stories, okay. So, go ahead, Josh. Why don't you kick us off? Okay, so we have... I got a little list here so we can kind of follow some notes and not get too rabbit holder sidetracked. There's there's a few of them that we got that it's funny. So, and none of them are, like, overly hilarious, but they're, they're pretty funny. So, the elevator was funny. So, we're on, we're on floor 11, okay? And... The elevators were great because I've, I've been to places before where the elevators are very slow and it takes forever. This, this place had, like, very fast elevators, tons of elevators, all great. The trick with the elevators are they're dangerous. So normally in an elevator you could put your arm in or your foot in or something to stop. Like, the it has that little bracket that if you bang that bracket, the thing will be like, whoa, I don't want to crush anybody, so we got to open back up. The elevator's kind of smart that way for... for hundreds of well not hundreds of years but like many many years since the advent of elevators that little thing in the middle you'd always been able to put your arm in there I'll, you know i've been in hundreds of elevators and you always put your arm in there well yeah 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 so i the first time we needed to get to our floor there was an elevator with its door shutting and i'm like oh excuse me and i just jutted my arm in there as if as if it was going to bounce back and uh the, the elevators, I don't want to make any exaggerations. They they don't actually, like, close on your arm to where you're going to be hospitalized or anything. But they do not bounce back. Like, basically what happens is it just closes on your arm. It closes on your arm, man. And then you just have to wiggle your arm out of there. 
It's like a like a like a like a bear in a honey jar. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like you just got snapped in some kind of a trap. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's unbelievable. So they got me, and I told Josh about it, and Josh is like, "Well, you know, it's it's just so hard to believe, right?" So what did what did you do? Well, I go, "I can't be that way. It's not safe, right?" So I'm coming down like the day later, and the the first thing that happened was. I kind of raced into the elevator to catch up with some people, and the thing closed, and it, it like cl- it slammed my shoulder like like an like an NFL. It winged you. Yeah, yeah it winged me like an NFL <laughs> D back or something. And I'm like, oh shit, man, you gotta be careful on these things. So then, you know, next time I come on the elevator, I'm all by myself. There's no one around. And I got a bottle of water in my hand, and. The, the people get off the elevator and I'm trying to be cautious and courteous so I'm standing back well these things also close very fast so it's it's the worst of both worlds where they close super fast and then they clamp down like an alligator so I'm like okay and I just still didn't believe Demi like not that I didn't believe him, but I kind of didn't so I'm like I have to test this because I have an opportunity and it just happened in the moment <clears throat> I have my water bottle I stick my water bottle in <laughs> like it's like it's a hand or a, or a foot or something and the elevator clamped down on it it would not let go. So I literally was laughing and I was holding the, the water bottle and the elevator doors were clamped and it wouldn't close, it wouldn't do anything, it just clamped and it was stuck. So I literally had to grab both hands on the water bottle and like almost put my foot up against the door and, and like pop the water bottle out. And then I and then I knew, then I believed Debbie. That was my proof, I finally saw it for myself. Yeah, so it's just funny, you know, when you go to a tournament, it's like there's always things that you prepare for but some of the some of the traps, you know, you gotta you always gotta yeah, you have eyes in the back of your head, Josh. Yeah, so that's right. it when you're when you're a role player. So yeah, and then this is you know public service announcement. If you're in, if you're at Haraz Haraz hit the Atlantic City, careful in the elevators. That's right. So just wait wait for the next one. Yeah, yeah, it's not worth it. Okay. All right. So next next up on the list, the trap table. Oh gosh, I forgot. Okay, yeah, yeah. So uh, during our stay out there, after I was eliminated, we we went up to the. Uh, I don't know. We went up to the Atlantic City Billiard Club, mm-hmm. and uh, I, there was a player, there was a well-known player in there that I decided I wanted to just play a set of pool with. And so I, I, I don't know. I walked up and asked him to play, and we played a we played a race, uh, we played a set of pool, and it would have been maybe more than one set, but as soon as I started playing, I was like, "Wow, this guy's playing bad. This guy, I can't believe how bad he plays. I thought he played better than that because you know he's, you know, a known player, or whatever, to some extent, and." Um, but he was missing and getting missing, and I was like, "This is gonna be easy." And I started like, <laughs> and so I, I like I stay a game or two right away, and then, and then, nothing went in the pocket. And, and you know, the long story short is, I found out like pretty quickly, like within a rack or two, that this was the tightest table I've ever played on in my life. Like I've played on plenty. Like we have a table in Minneapolis that's like really, 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 really trappy, like four inch pockets with deep shelves, and like you know, like at least four inch pockets with tight shelves and it's very 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 challenging um this table at the biggest was three and seven eighths inch and beyond that the rails were a little gaffy the cut of the pocket was gaffy and uh and the the cue ball and the ball set i mean i'm not it was just it was absolutely it was like i haven't ever played chinese eight ball but it was i would assume it's kind of like that and uh i didn't know that when i asked this guy to play so here i am playing this player and playing you know we're you know we're we're not playing for fun right and and i didn't and all of a sudden i can't like nobody could run out like nobody could run out in fact to give you an example of how difficult this was he and i both missed two nine balls that would be conceitable like literally 
you saw me, Josh. I yeah. missed. I missed. You saw one of them. I missed. Well, that was the hard one. The other one was substantially easier <laughs> than that. And this other, the other guy, he missed two nine balls that were absolutely conceitable. And uh, but they was just you shoot them all on this table because none of them have to go. And. And so it was this absurd situation where nobody could run out, and then all the rules, like all the strategies, change. So at one point, my guy's on the hill. He's up like six five. We're going to seven. And at four four, by the way, I just asked him if he wanted to call the thing off. I'm like, man, I didn't know what I was getting into. I'm like, this is stupid. Like, like we could just quit and call this set off. Like, and I told him, I said, you know what? I'm not playing a second set. Like, even if you beat me, I'm quitting because I don't want to play on this. So, like, I don't want you to think I'm firing my, you know, my toothpick at your lumber yard here. But like this isn't what I signed up for. I'm not having any fun. Like, this isn't pool. And he's like, you know, of course he thinks he's stealing from me. So he's like, nah, nah, we're going to play it out. So anyway, he's up six, five. And, uh, the two, nine combo was like almost dead. And he played a safety on the one. And I looked at the two, nine and I looked at the one ball and I can kick and hit the one a hundred percent of the time, like absolutely an easy kick. But I didn't know for sure I could get safe. And I, the last thing I wanted to do is leave him a shot where he could make the one on the two, nine. Because there's zero chance he could run the table on this table. So I looked at it, and I looked at it, and I'm just like, nah. And I just took an intentional foul and shoved the two to the middle of the end rail and uh, gave up ball in hand. And he was able to make the one and get on the two and pocket the two, and that's where his run stopped. So it's like he can't even get to the three ball. And it's like, anyway, it was just that's the kind of table we were on. It's like all the rules changed. And, uh, yeah, so then he it ends up going like, yeah, well, he ends up beating me. So good for him. He got me. I think he got me. We decided I got it to Hill Hill. He said, let's win by two. So he ended up beating. He won the next two games. He beat me eight, six. And he won the next game. And then I charred the nine ball mail. I just couldn't. It's just brutal, oh, man. You came with an eight ball shot that was Oh, like, the best shot of my life. Almost impossible. And I saw you queuing it high. And I'm like, oh, this is going to this is gonna ping pong out like a like a pocket tightener. And you nutted it and got really. Yeah, he's up, yeah, he's up seven, six. Crazy. I forgot about that. He's up seven, six. The nine's in the rack area. The cue ball's by the nine. And the eight ball's up table. And I had to, like, fire it down the rail with high ball and force follow to the side rail, end rail, and back to the other end of the table. And I was actually bridged where I was bridging off the end rail. And yeah. I, I warped that ball in. And that's about as hard as I ever hit a shot. And uh, I, I somehow I split the wicket on that thing. And then I dogged a nine like a like a sucker. <laughs> like a sucker. <laughs> it's okay. But it was like, it's hard to feel, man. He dogged two nine oh, balls. You gosh, know what I mean? Yeah. That table. I remember when you guys were warming up and I, I saw the table. I'm like, oh, no. Because I saw the shots that he was missing, and I'm like, this is not something like these pockets are like under four inches. And, and yeah. then, uh, yeah, and it just played out that way. And we were talking about it, and Demi, you were saying, like, we were trying to figure out what's a, what's a beatable ghost on that table. I mean, just to give you a, 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 an idea of how tight it was. I mean, that thing was. I yeah. would rather play the 10 ball ghost on a normal diamond than the five ball ghost on that table. Yeah. I think I could beat the four ball ghost on that table, but it's like, I had, like, I was thinking about, like, how often a ball would land. Yeah. Like, yeah. And he had made a comment he didn't think Dennis could beat the nine ball ghost on it and things like that. So, yeah. 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 So, yeah, it was, it was a trappy, trappy, trappy <sighs> You never know. You never know what you're going to get. Yeah. It's like, uh, funny. And then my personal favorite moment was, uh, you know, of course, things that I could really talk about on a podcast, you know, we can't, can't share everything, but, um, I liked sweating the last few matches. That was a lot of fun. And, uh, one thing that I didn't really know that I was doing until like, it just kind of happened organically. Like I didn't plan it, but when we were watching these matches, there was a few times when like, it would be a really, really big rack or a really, really big shot. And like somebody would miss a ball or just do a devastating mistake. 
and uh, maybe miss a nine ball or, or just, you know, hook themselves on the six or something like that. And um, I just decided it would be fun to be the guy in the crowd that gasped really, really loud. And so, like, not every mistake, but once in a while, like, if somebody, like, came off a ball and scratched, I would just go, <gasps> like, really, really loud. And I don't know, it was just kind of, maybe you had to be there, but I was just sitting, like, I would just hit, I was the guy that went, <gasps> and took the deep, extended, super loud, 100 decibel gasp. So yeah. I was having fun with that. So if you guys were watching a stream, and you heard a and you heard a very audible gasp. That was probably me. And I was just having fun with it, man. It's like it's just I love that I was hanging on the drop, and I just love. I'm like somebody's got a gasp. Well, and the funny thing is, is that there was like music thumping the whole entire tournament until the semifinals, and then they turned off the music, and everything got dead quiet. And so it was pretty. It, like your gasp went to eleven, and it was just really. <laughs> It it's was like, like it was a super. Yeah. It was an unnaturally loud gasp. Like, yeah. Like the players, if they heard it, they're like, "Who gasps that loud?" <laughs> it was pretty brutal. Uh, I wasn't uh, that bad. I was. No, bad. I know. I was. Yeah, I was. was, was I was good. like. I was a little bit on the loud side, but not, but still with tolerance of like yeah. what a kind of a you know an eccentric pool sweater might do. So exactly. So those were some. So those are some of the things that happen when you're playing playing pool. But um, all right. So fun times but what about um so so people have asked how we did and so josh how did your tournament go well let's see it was all right <laughs> it was I, I learned a lot so we can talk about that too i uh you know i i went i went one and two so it's like i played um who's that guy sean shane wolford shane shane wolford first round and uh he's a good tough player and I got there. I was down six three, and uh, I, I got it nine seven. Um, and I would say that I played tight with a little bit loose in the first round, and it worked out okay for me. Second round, I played a Eurobot. I literally can't remember the guy's name. Seven eighty something Fargo ish, and it was pretty awful. I, I played way too loose. I ended up losing nine four. And uh, it just was, it was kind of, it was pretty bad. I was pretty, pretty upset. Um, just, just how I sort of, how loose I was. So then I, I pulled myself together and made a determination that I was going to go out on my shield and fight hard and uh, not be so loose and, and try to, no, I just, that was what I came up with as my plan moving forward after that second round loss. And, and uh, then I played a tough player, uh, you know, he's around a 700, and he's from New Jersey. Joey Tessa, I think his name is. And, uh, you know, I, 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 I executed my game plan. I, I played super, super hard, super focused, and uh, got to 8-6, and lost 9-8, and it was brutal, and it was tough. And then uh, I went through my, uh, my post-tournament ritual of quitting pool, and, and then I... Uh, Determined that's not gonna that's not gonna work for me, so I scraped myself off the floor, and uh, yeah, and then just kind of thought about what I want to do and how I want to do things. And I got the international open coming up in a month, and uh, you know after I lose out of the tournament, I'm thinking about punting everything and and, all, and just negative and it's yucky and sad. But I, I I got back together. I pulled it together. I pulled it together. So. Yeah, yeah, the, everything's the, good. You know, the periods of quitting pool after a loss have gotten substantially shorter and shorter and shorter as you've competed more to where it's like, 
now you quit pool for about five minutes at most. You know, oftentimes you quit pool for like 20 seconds, you know? Yeah. But it's like there's not an actual gap of like years or months. Yeah. It's like it's worked its way down to where now you quit pool for like three minutes and you're okay. Yeah, exactly. So, it's good. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I'm just kind of being silly about it and just yeah. being transparent and honest about how I am, man. I'm, I got, I got my problems and I got my uh, issues, but, but I'm also trying and, and I'm not quitting and, and, uh, you know, I can get negative and I can get sad and I can get disappointed, but I can also pick myself up and try again. So, you know, yeah. not quitting might be like kind of the most important skill in pool improvement. So it's yeah. not a bad thing to kind of talk about. It's like, really, there's a lot of things where if you just don't stop, you know, it, what is it, like the, the find, you know, Dory and the Finding Nemo, it just keeps swimming yeah. or whatever. I mean, if you ever want to find Nemo, you have to keep swimming. Yeah. yeah. So that's it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's just, it's an interesting process, man. Well, cool. well, one thing so. with one thing I was going to ask you. So one thing that was kind of new to Josh and I was, uh, you know, a lot of tournaments have 30 second shot clocks, but usually those shot clocks are reserved for late in the tournament or the TV table. And Josh and I have not made it to the, uh, you know, final, final eight or final 16 or whatever of a major uh, international event to where they put us on that TV table. And so we all, this, this tournament, everybody was on a 30 second shot clock from the first match on all matches. So they had scorekeepers on every table, keeping a 30 second shot clock on everybody with one extension for rack. And that was the first time either of us have played on a shot clock. And what's interesting is, is that I'm typically on the slower side and Josh is on the faster side, but how you know and when we when we practiced in Beloit when we were warming up I actually we practiced with the shot clock just and it seemed like it wasn't really an issue for either of us but that seemed like it might have changed a little bit once the match started how did that go how did that did that make an impact on you oh yeah it was awful I mean it was awful it, it just it was I just wasn't ready for it and uh you know it, it just it specifically hit me in a really awful way and uh yeah I just I need to set and reset and I have a lot of negative thoughts going and, and I'll need to, and I need to reset. And if I can't reset those thoughts, then, uh, I'm kind of screwed. And I, uh, and there's probably other people that would say, well, it affected me too and all that stuff. So that's totally fine. It's just, my experience was, it was, it was awful. I mean, it, it just was really, really tough to fade and, uh, I, it just didn't fit with me well. And now that I've done it once, I probably could like readjust and hulk out and, practice with it more and, and try to think my way through it and build a new rhythm and, and all that but but under those conditions and the way it was going and how things worked out and everything it just didn't didn't work for me it was it was better in the third set um but in the first set it was a challenge in the second set it was a disaster and then the third set I was a little bit more used to it and uh like I, my my opinion is like I like the way I played the third set and I was okay with the shot clock, even if I was a little rushed at times. Uh, but but it definitely is, you know, you don't get a lot of shells out there, and uh, yeah, it just kind of it was a it was a big one. And I, I literally forgot about that when I was just giving my recap. But but I'm not trying to make excuses either. It's like, hey man, it's tough on everybody. Everyone has to shoot the shot clock. I get it. I get it. It's just for me in particular, it was awful. So yeah, yeah. And I think we can I could maybe come back to that after I tell my little my little Sega because I, there's a couple things I wanted to dig in on that, but, uh, my tournament, I, it's weird. I, I feel good in terms of how I executed my game plan 
results, I will tell you, I could have, I could have made a deep run the way I was playing, and I could have gotten, I could have gone two and out the way I was playing. So the results are just kind of like, I look at the way the sets played out, and I'm like, there's, there's a few things that didn't have to go that way, uh, good and bad. Like I didn't have to win the matches I won, and I didn't have to lose one of the matches I lost. But it's just pool, man. It's like sometimes somebody wins, somebody loses. So I got to play Jeremy Jones first round. And uh, that was pretty cool. I was excited to get to play him because, you know, he's, we have, he and I have a lot in common. You know, we both, you know, anyway, so, um, so we started playing and uh, it's race to nine and Jeremy has not been competing a ton. He's been doing a lot of lessons and commentary and I know he's, you know, but anyway, um, and we're both on the shot clock and we're both first round and first round is really, really hard for everybody. So for those that haven't gone to a pro event, there's a lot of patchy sets in the first round. That's it. There's just a lot of patchy sets. We haven't settled in. We haven't gotten any momentum or rhythm. And uh, and I really, really, really struggled with the shot clock. And that was a huge issue for me. And we'll get into why. It's like it's not about how much time you have to shoot. It's more about other things, which we can get into. But uh, So I struggled with the shot clock. And it's like there's a bunch of things, man. You've got the shot clock is one thing. You've got the pressure is another thing and then the third thing is how difficult the game is to play and how, you know just having to run through those tables and, and make you know a couple of shots and you know get adjusting to the new slidey equipment and you know kind of getting a feel for the table and then last of all is your opponent which they get to play back and they're very very tough to beat so it's like you're up against the clock the pressure the game and your opponent and it was a lot and I it was down 6-3 and then you know I, 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 fortunately for me, I mean, I'm not real happy that Jeremy lost or, you know, made a couple of mistakes, but um, he kind of gave me the opportunities I needed to get it tied up at seven. And then, oh, one thing that kind of funny happened at the end is I got up eight to seven, going to nine. And then I ended up having, uh, I played a safety and he kicked and hit a ball and he left me a six ball run. So I've got a six ball run where I'm up eight, seven to close out the set. And there was a weird thing that came up with the scorekeeper. And long story short, they had to switch scorekeepers on us. So the person that was kind of like almost refing our match had to get swapped out. And so here I am, I'm up 8-7. I've got a six-ball run for the win. I've got an easy shot on the first shot. And they said, hold on, we got to switch scorekeepers. And I had like a, I don't know if it was five or ten minutes, but it was a substantial like pause in the, in the action where I kind of sat in my chair for like eight or nine minutes waiting to be told I could go ahead and run these six balls. And the longer I sat there, I'm just staring at this run, like trying to be like, I, it was just like the ultimate ice job. I mean, the run just got harder and harder. And all I'm seeing is like more and more ways that this, can I run these balls out? And I need to run these balls out. And I mean, I can run those balls out, I think. And it was, it was a weird spot, man. I've just never, it's just one of those things. Like, it's like when you're a pool player, you just find yourself in interesting spots that you never really expect to be in. And I've just, you know, I've played a lot of matches and I've never been like iced on the hill where I've had to wait 10 minutes staring at a six ball run. And then somebody comes back and start the clock. <laughs> it's like, okay. That was kind of funny. Yeah. But anyway, uh, I got away with it. I actually got a little lucky that run. I, I misplayed my cue ball. It doesn't matter. I got through it. So that was cool. And then the second round I played, um, Waleed, I don't remember his last name, but, uh, from Qatar and, uh, he's a good player. I mean, we're similar rating. He might have me by a few Fargo points, but, uh, that one, um, I was I felt good about the way I, I closed it out. It was seven seven, 
he came up dry on the break and I ran on two racks. So that, that felt good. But it always feels good to close out on the hill. And then I lost my next two sets. I played my third round was Ralph Souquet, who has you know, always been one of my favorite players. And he performed phenomenally. He, he didn't run on as many racks for the break as I maybe expected him to. He was uh, either coming up dry or getting hooked or having to play a safety. Like it wasn't, he wasn't raining packages on me. But what was interesting is him and my next opponent in the next two sets, it was Ralph and my next opponent, who was Conrad, between both opponents I played, only one ball was missed by my opponents in two sets to 11. At this point, we're racing to 11. And that was, they both played like phenomenal sets. And Ralph played a phenomenal set. And the only thing he did wrong was like, there was a couple safeties that leaked out. And that was kind of what kept me alive. And so he had me like 8-4 and then I got it to like 8-6. Then he got me to 10-6 and I, and I got it to 10-8 and then I choked. And I just choked and I missed a shot and closed me out 11-8. And now I get to spend the rest of my life wondering if I'd won that rack to get to 9-10, if I could have maybe come with something that stole that set from Ralph and made a good run in the U.S. Open. But instead, I'm on the B-side playing a much softer opponent in Conrad from Poland. And I can't pronounce his name, Conrad J. And, and by softer, you mean not softer. And by, I mean much. It's like I, I was sitting there, I'm like, well, Ralph only literally only missed one ball against me. I was up 10-8, and he finally missed a, a tough one ball. And I'm like, the guy played a really, really good set on me. And I'm like, well, it can't get any tougher than that. <laughs> and then I played Conrad. And it might not have literally been three innings, but it was almost a three-inning set. The guy beat me 11-1, where he got me down like 4-0 to zero and like, one or two turns. He ran He ran a bunch of racks on me to get me down four to zero. And I got a shot. He scratched on the break. And I ran the table to get the 4-1. And then I broke and I played a safety. I played a safety at him. So now I ran a rack and now I've got him hooked on the one ball. I'm like, oh, I'm going to fight my way back. Yeah. And he pulls out his jump cue and jumps that ball in. And he, I don't remember if he ran five or six racks, but it was something like that. Like, it was like four to one and he's hooked. And then it was like 10 to one. And, uh, he basically ran like five or six racks on me and yeah, that was it. It was just, it was like, it was almost, the set was almost over. And then he finally at 10 to one, he finally hooked himself and, uh, and jumped and missed and didn't leave me a shot. I tried to cross bank a ball two way and it ended up hanging up and he ran out. So I got beat 11, one in like three or four innings where, yeah, it was just very, very fast. And the funny part about his runs is like each one got tougher and tougher and tougher. Yeah. And his, I mean, it was, Josh, have it you ever incredible. seen anything like that? I no, mean, it was incredible. I mean, he's just the shots that he made was very, very eye-opening. He shot difficult shots very hard with multiple rail shape, like hangers. And and, and he was dead dialed in the zone. Like that there's no two ways around it. And you and you just it's not like, oh go ahead, shoot those shots and all day and we'll bet on it. Not at all. I mean, the guy literally is a great player and he just shoots very dynamic shots in uh in, in, in hard and smooth i mean that was really really impressive like super impressive and the runouts got tougher and tougher and tougher and he kept he kept doing it and jumping in balls and running out and back cutting three real shape from distance and, and how many balls he like had a run where he like had to like splice like three different shots past the side pocket oh, up yeah. the rail and he just kept like it was almost like he had, he had balls on the side rail where he had to play the four ball past the side up in the corner and like smooth his cue ball around to shoot another ball past the side up in the corner yeah. and then thin cutting balls and it just up the rail and it was just everything yeah. it was like a video game and he was yeah. like yeah it was it was funny to watch he was just running yeah. around the table with a smile on his face laughing as he shot everything in the hole yeah. 
and it's tough action. So what I learned is that it's never fun to lose because if you lose a close set, then you wonder, like, you feel like, man, I almost had that. But when you lose a blowout set, then it's like, I got blown out. And so there's really, and if you lose when you play bad, then you're like, oh man, I, I played bad. I gave that one away. And if you lose when you play good, then you're like, my good game isn't enough. And so it's like, there's really no way to lose out of the tournament and not kind of feel like, you know, like your pet died or something. It's, it's not the funnest, but, uh, but no. So overall though, what I'm happy with is that, uh, I felt like, uh, I definitely choked a few times and, uh, I definitely had, I had patches where the pressure would get to me and I'd kind of yip a shot or, you know, I had a couple blown shots due to pressure, but overall I felt pretty composed and it got better as the tournament went on and I, and I closed out my first two matches and, um, and, and I responded pretty well to the adversity I faced. So I felt like I handled the pressure pretty well. I felt like I, uh, I played pretty well. And then, um, you know, yeah, I, overall I, I managed to, you know, I ran a, a few tables from the break that when I needed to. And, uh, and so I knew going out there, the break was a big thing and I was pretty hung up on generating opportunities. I generated pretty good opportunities off my break. Uh, some of the things I've been practicing came up and I was able to do them. So I was felt good about, I felt good about everything. I just, uh, that same performance, like Jeremy Jones could have just closed me out in the first set or I, or that guy that, uh, Waleed, he could have drive, you know, he could have run the last two racks instead of dry breaking. So it's like, I feel like, um, I could have made it further. I could have came shorter. Results are very, very, very turbulent. But uh, as it is, uh, I felt I felt pretty good. And uh, and then I wanted to talk about that time clock because that was definitely I got better with the time clock every set. But I think the thing I learned about the time clock is that it's not about the time. It's not the time. It's the it's the it's the pressure and the emotion of the situation. And so people could say, oh, well, 30 seconds is plenty of time to shoot a shot. What's the problem? But the, the problem is when it creates like a sense of panic, you know, because when you're playing pool under pressure, it's already hard to stay calm and relaxed. And when you are have a clock that's ticking and people calling 10 seconds and you and you know that you're coming short on time sometimes and you have to get the shot off, it just you know that you can't, like, if you want to stand up and, like, regroup. I remember playing Jeremy. I missed a couple shots. I I remember two shots I missed where normally I would have reset on the ball, but I just felt like I couldn't get off the shot. And, uh, yeah, I mean, what what do you think? I mean, so my thing is that I don't think it's about the time. I think it's about trying to keep an emotional calm inside of that time pressure. Yep. And the thing I learned by watching the time clock and watching players on the clock after I got knocked out, which is a little late, but whatever, is that uh, there's a way to handle the clock and the way to handle your timeout or your, your extension, rather. And I guess I didn't really know until after I'd watched. It's like I was always worried about burning my extension. And the, 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 the thing that I saw is that as soon as there was a, something where a person was going to be up against it and they weren't ready, they just take their extension because it was a huge, you're only going to get this one opportunity at this rack or maybe several racks if you're unlucky with how it turns out. So you have to like, you, you got to use your extension when you have it and you got to reset. And I didn't really know that. I mean, I, I, I rushed myself on, on critical shots at critical points in matches and, and it just, and then w- when you do that and you miss, and it's like a shot that I feel like under normal circumstances I could reset and come with, then it's like I'm, I'm kind of like flustered more and it's just, 
everything feels even more rushed and more more screwed up. So some of some of it's just understanding that you, the way I saw all, all everyone else that had been on the clock before, they just took their extension. They, yeah, they were no yeah. one was really saving their extensions. They just they just took it if they needed it. So here's and I and I learned this along the way is that if I had. You know what? Because here's where the fear comes in. You're afraid that if you take your extension, then at some point later in the rack, you're going to be in a spot where you have a tough nine ball, and you're not going to have time to take a deep breath and really get off the shot and make sure you make it. So there's this fear that you're going to have a tricky spot come up. You're not going to have your extension, and you're going to choke on the nine ball, or that you're going to hook yourself on the eight, or something like, or leave yourself a tough nine ball and miss it. And so it's like because of that fear, there's a real, there's like a natural, real reluctance to take your extension. And the problem with that is, is that if you don't take your extension, you blow it now, and there then is you don't no even, future. There is no future. And so, so what I learned is, is that like if I had to count how many games did I lose because I made an error because of I was rushed and I did not have my extension anymore, versus how many errors did I make because I rushed to not use my extension, I, I it's like I probably made, a, you know, out of all my errors, there might have been ten that I rushed myself and only like one where I was rushed by my lack of extension. Now, had of course, if I'd taken my extension all of those times, then maybe there would have been situations where later in the rack I would have been rushed and maybe I would have made three errors because I was rushed at the end of the rack. But it's better to make three errors where I'm rushed at the end of the rack than ten errors where I'm like, you know, over the tournament where I'm like rushing myself unnecessarily. Yeah. And so in the future, if I play a time clock, if I, if, here's the point is, if you have to ask yourself, should I use my extension? The answer is yes. If anybody plays with the time clock, if, if the thought crosses your mind that should I use it, it's probably a yes. Because if you're fine, you wouldn't even ask yourself that question. It, the way I saw it was, when you get a warning, you take your extension. Unless you're down on the ball and you're absolutely dialed in, then you make an exception because you're ready to shoot and trigger. But like, if anybody, yeah. It, like I, yeah, like I watch players and they just, they just, they just naturally called their extension when the time clock went out. Yeah, the only exception would be if, like, if you have a stop shot and you're using your time now to like look at the pattern so that you kind of use your burning your clock now, and then they call ten seconds, you get down and shoot a stop shot. Yeah. That's one thing. Or if you're down in a shot, and you're ready and, to trigger, and, and it's you're a waiting routine shot, and you're waiting and you're for locked. them to call. So sometimes here's the funny part too: is sometimes you're waiting. What I learned is a lot of times you get down on the shot and then you wait for them to call 10 seconds so that you shoot because you don't want them to be calling. You don't, Not only don't you want them to call 10 seconds like while you're about to shoot, but you don't want to wonder when they're about to call 10 seconds. Like you just want to hear it so that you know that's not going to come up and then you go ahead and deliver your stroke. Yeah. The problem is, and this I don't really want to get into this, like, but there was a couple times the scorekeepers might not have called 10 They They were instructed from the match room not to call 10 seconds if a player was about to shoot the shot. So what that means is like when they're taking their backstroke to deliver their cue, don't call 10 seconds at that moment. Uh, that's what they were instructed. Well, the problem is not all the scorekeepers are real deep with you know pool experience or ref experience. They weren't referees. They were like volunteer scorekeepers. So some of the refs or some of the scorekeepers didn't know when you were down. If you were down taking practice strokes, they're supposed to call 10 seconds if you're taking practice strokes, but if they don't know how to differentiate practice strokes from a final stroke, then they might just not call 10 seconds at all. So there was a few times when I was down getting ready to shoot, waiting for them to call 10 seconds so I could take my shot, and then they never called 10 seconds, and then I'm like, man, am I timing out? I don't even... Anyway, it was funny. It was some challenging stuff, especially we've never been on the clock. And uh, but, but as far as what Josh said about rhythm, 
what I found worked for me was I've been calling it like I was kind of calling it a waltz, which is kind of three things that I that I kind of do on these shots where it's like first I have to make my decision as to what I'm going to do. Then I have to get down on the shot and get set up to where I feel like I'm ready to pull the trigger. And that's kind of what I go into my pause of the cue ball. And then I have to deliver a calm swing. And what I think I did is I kind of broke it down that way where it was like make up my mind, lock it by shot, deliver my cue. And it was like the three pauses of a waltz. And so what I realized was as long as I made up my mind very quickly, like I just had to make up my mind very quickly. And as long as I made up my mind quickly, it didn't take me that long to get on the ball and lock in and then deliver my cue. So I think the where I was struggling early on was I'm used to having more time to weigh out. I'm used to weighing out options. And once I basically just said, no, I'm not going to weigh out options. You know, of course, of course that happens a little bit, right? Like maybe you look at two things, but when you weigh out your options, you have to go like gut reaction. Like, am I going to do this or that? We're going with that. That feels good. And you just have to like kind of pick pretty quick. And I'd say as long as you're like making your decision within like two to five seconds, then you have time to get on the shot, get down, set, and pull the trigger. It's that it's that if you have a, a decision where it's not so easy, then you just you just can't really weigh options, I'd say, very often. So anyway, once I found that rhythm for me, then I started playing much more calm with the shot clock. And then it not only did it eliminate the threat of the shot clock, but it, it eliminated me feeling rushed or rushing balls as much. So you know, of course, I didn't feel rushed at all against uh, against Conrad because I never shot. So, and then oh, the funny thing with Conrad too, I forgot is yeah, he was running like a million racks on me, and I had, it was funny because I was just like I looked at Josh at one point he ran like I don't know how many racks at me, but he was up like eight to one, and I looked at Josh and I was like, I don't have a response for this. It was a pretty absurd set. And then, yeah, uh, yeah. And then I liked it at nine to one. He was getting ready to break at nine to one. And I've only been to the table once, and I ran the table, and I'm down nine to one. And I looked at Josh, and I said to him, "This is a big rack." <laughs> like, like I mean, it's just it was just completely absurd. It's like the way it was. The set was so lopsided. Yeah. And then of course my after after I lost, when we were walking back, like it's always kind of quiet after a loss, and we're walking back to the hotel and hell hotel room and dodging the the jaws of death at the elevator. And, and I looked at Josh, and I think I said, "At times like this, it's hard not to get somewhat philosophical." Because it's just like you yeah. watch a set like that, and you're just like, "I'll never play a set like that in my life." So, yeah. why? What am I doing? But yeah. we all have our moments. So. Well, it's like after every loss, it's hard not to get philosophical, and it's just it's difficult. It's a hard game, man. It's a hard journey, hard game, for sure. That is true. So, Josh, good tournament, good fun. What are your takeaways for the practice table and what you're going to work on between now and next tournament? Yeah, that's that's good, Dem, because I do have one coming up, like I mentioned, in a month at the International Open. So, I uh, yeah, I, I learned I learned a couple things, right? So after I thought about what I can get from my diamond table and my cues and how much <laughs> I can, what I can recoup back from my from my investment on all that time. So once I thought about pulling my listing from eBay, I thought, well, what did I learn or what did I learn? So, so here's the thing, like, so golfing, I grew up golfing and playing, playing golf and, and, and working on handicap and kind of getting my handicap down and, and, uh, and playing tournaments and seeing how I performed in tournaments versus practice and all that stuff. And I've kind of lost track of that because I haven't golfed. I'm 48 years old. I haven't golfed 
in uh, many years since kids and things and, and, and family, I kind of gave up golf and, and just kind of took took whatever time I had and kind of put it towards pool. So the the one the one thing I that kind of got me off tilt a little bit was I was thinking about Fargo rate as it would like be analogous to a golf handicap, and I thought about it and I thought. If I look at my Fargo rate performance for the tournament, I thought it was pretty close to like shooting my handicap, like my my my, my yeah, like shooting my handicap. Like so, if I in golf, I was like a five, got down to about a five handicap, and so on a seventy, it kind of depends on slope and things. But let's just say it's like mid to high seventies. So if I went to a, a, a tournament and I could shoot my golf handicap, I'd be really happy because there's a ton of pressure and I've seen. I've seen like literally dozens, if not hundreds, of people not be able to shoot their handicap under pressure, and so I, uh, I just thought about it as far as Fargo right now. Looked at my tournament, the U.S. Open, which is tons of pressure, international stage, like world-class players, all that, all those things. And when I calmed down about it, it just hit me, and I'm like, well, I pretty much shot my handicap, quote unquote, in this tournament under a lot of pressure, and and it made me realize, man. I just like in golf, it'd be like playing a round of golf in a tournament and, and shooting shooting my handicap in a big pressure situation. But the thing is, is it, it's like, yeah, I might have hit in the trap. I might have hit in the water. I might have jacked one out of bounds. It's like I, I had a bunch of errors and mistakes. But but when all the smoke cleared, I, sh- I kind of shot my handicap, which 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 is not bad in a big tournament like that. And, and so... I don't know. That that's kind of my first takeaway. It was, and I wanted to let other like kind of share that with people and, and say, hey, I, I don't think it's it's okay to be completely wrapped up in Fargo or or if you're a golfer to be wrapped up in your handicap and all that. But but if you look at it in a in a, a you know a quantitative qualitative way, I think it can be useful. And I and I think that for me it was useful to kind of pull myself. Uh, up off the ground and to realize even though I made all these mistakes even though I felt awful even though I it felt really punty and bad um it wasn't as bad as I thought and I, when I actually kind of look at the numbers it, it was it was kind of on par so so that that and, and under a lot of pressure with a shot clock and all those things we already went over so so that was that was a way to look at it and, and that that kind of helped me kind of calmed down I guess I'd say so I I learned I learned that little trick and uh yeah so I yeah I, go ahead yeah so I think that um what what stood out for me is like how many of these sets so when we talked a little bit about this I mean and I've talked before about process versus results and it's like we live in a world that's very very result focused very 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 much did you win or lose who'd you beat did you cash any scalps how deep was your run did you get there did you make are you the hero or are you the goat are you the guy that ran out on the hill or are you the guy that dogged it like which one defines you and which one but it's like the, the funny part about that is like it's just not the optimal way to think about it because when you're playing there's all i mean it's just a process it's just it's much it's just not optimal to like be so result focused and there's a balance that like you have to be results driven but so often you can turn in a great performance and not get there and you can turn in a poor performance and get there and then you know like I, I use my example with Jeremy Jones like Jeremy Jones had me down six to three I miss I'm rushed on the shot clock nervous first round pressure and and just you know 
Pashy, and if he had closed me out, I would have lost my first round. And then I don't know what would have happened. Maybe I dog out in two rounds or three rounds. But the bottom line is, is that what instead what happened was he made a few mistakes because he was patchy and a little first round and just whatever. And then because he made a few mistakes and it goes seven seven and I end up running out of you know a couple racks and haha I win. But the thing is. So now I get to look back and be like, oh, I, you know, I, I won that set. And look at me. And I ran out of the hill the six balls after being ice. But it's like, that didn't have to go that way. And so the funny part about it is, just because I got across the finish line that set didn't mean that I didn't make all the mistakes that I made during that set, that I didn't dog the shots I dogged, that I didn't, you know, come up short where I came up short. On the other hand, when I lost to Ralph 11-8, just because I missed a seven ball that would have got me to 10-9 doesn't mean that I didn't play a very, very good set and manage myself well and actually play pretty well the whole the whole time. And and so like when you when you it's I guess the whole idea of process is you you kind of grade yourself on did I did I do my best in each of the areas that I'm I feel are my areas of focus and the, the things I need to do and and then if you and then not even if they all like you certainly can't look at did I win and lose. And then you can't even really look at how well did I do sometimes because in a situation like that like we were facing stuff you know we're facing a shot clock we've never faced we're facing pressure that we don't get to face all that often and it's you know I mean more often you know it's every couple months more than every couple hours it's just a tough spot and so if you get up there and you do your best then you know I don't really know it's like I just don't really see any reason to be hard on yourself even if you didn't shoot your Fargo rate like I guess I guess that would be my question, Josh. We didn't really talk about that. But, like, suppose you'd underperformed your Fargo rate, but you were trying your best in each area, and that was just where how you played. I mean, I guess at what point, like, when do you ever look at it and say, well, now I should be upset with myself? Like, when is there a time you should be upset with yourself? Because I have an answer, but what's your answer to that? Uh, that's a good one, man. Yeah, I, uh... It's hard. It's hard not to get upset with yourself because we're human beings, right? And so, am I a human being? Yes. Do I get upset with myself? Yes. Do I get disappointed and sad because I don't get what I want? Like, yeah, for sure. And and I think my answer is, well, my process is to be upset and then to find a way out of that. without. Because if I sit there and say, I'm going to go out and I'm going to have some plan where I don't get upset with myself if I lose or if I underperform or if I over you know, whatever. It's like, I, it, that's just not going to work for me. So my answer is I'm always going to get upset. And so, so my answer is also, I'm not like, okay. The thing that I'm not going to do is pound my cue, slam the table, slow concessions. Like I'm not going to tisk tisk roll my eyes and this is ridiculous and all that stuff. It's cause I don't, that's like, so, so those are the areas where I think, well, I'm not going to get like that, but, but, but if I'm, if I'm disappointed and, and I underperform and I make prop, if I choke or if I, if I like in the second set, I just played, I just like kind of punted the opportunity and, uh, it's upsetting, man. But, but I guess my process is to be upset and then find, find a way to sort of make sense of it and move forward. Okay. So, so, so that's spe- my thing. So specifically like right now, what you use to kind of not talk yourself off a ledge, but what you use uh, to, to kind of like, you're, okay, so you lose, you're kind of disappointed and unhappy with your, you know, unhappy and, and, you know, like 
not not real feeling not you're feeling upset what you used to talk yourself off the ledge this time was you know if I looked at my overall performance and I'd grade myself as I performed the way you know I would expect someone at my level to perform and you know I didn't I didn't underperform that's how you kind of consoled yourself so my question is how would you talk yourself off the ledge if you had lost and you did underperform then I would have to look at the reasons I underperformed because I did underperform in my second set and then I have to look at the reasons and then I have to find corrective actions and so that's that's my that's the way I do it if I look at it I say oh, I underperformed in that situation um can I do better the next time and can I learn from that and can I make the changes necessary to try to not ensure that that never happens because I'm going to underperform from now until the time I'm done playing but I want to learn from those bad performances that's all so I would just evaluate where I underperformed and uh and like add those corrections to my to my game plan yeah I think that's really good because I think that there's a big difference between saying I'm going to look at those mistakes and then I'm going to find a way to make sure they never happen again because it's like no and I'm going to get to that with with in a second because it will happen again but what you can do is say at least what can I do to where sometimes those things don't happen again <laughs> so in yeah, other words yeah, exactly. in other words instead of saying I'm going to figure out what I did wrong and make sure that never happens again it's like well how can I play my cards in the future to where sometimes it doesn't break down there and, and I think that's a big difference is that instead of looking at it to where, and, and I'll give you an example for me is that I had, uh, it was very funny, Josh, because I missed a seven ball on, on Ralph at, at 10, eight. And it's like, I'll always wonder, man, 10, nine, me breaking, you know, Ralph was up 10, six, played a great set. Like maybe he, you know, maybe if at 10, nine, if I play a good rack or put him in a tough spot, he might give me ball in hand some which way and I can run out and make it a hill hill and maybe he's got a miss in him somewhere, you know? So it's like, or maybe I don't let him to the table. So it's like, I'll never know. And so it's a little upsetting because I, I, not because I lost, but because I just wanted to, I wish I would have found out, you know what I mean? Now I want to find out if I could have gotten there. And then I think back to, and it was very funny because then I thought back to that last tournament where uh, I, I lost to Jeremy Solsi on the hill hill where he led me back in the set and then I missed a two ball on the hill hill and he ran out and that would have gotten me in the final four, you know, tied for third in that thing. And, man, it would have been cool. And it's like, so I thought about that. And I thought about the seven ball I missed against Ralph. And I remember thinking, man, how come I can never just, like, close out a set? And then I started laughing because I'm like, I literally closed out two sets. And, like, just now. And then, like, the last tournament, I remember I had, like, a hill hill that I ran out against a good player. And when I was playing that, uh, that other guy where I was up, like, Nine eight. I ended up running out the last two breaks. So it's like I close out sets all the time. But it's so hard when you're just take a loss and you're feeling down. It's just so hard to have any perspective. And and so my point is just that like there's going to be closeouts and there's going to be dogs and that's it. And 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 especially the one thought that was on my mind was just a vast vast number of players that were missing balls under pressure. I mean international champions that I'm watching just miss nines and, and meltdown. It's it's so common. One I asked. Um, I asked a top player, a top U.S. player, I'm going to leave it at that, and I saw him at the tournament, I said, how did you do it? He says, oh, I'm out. I'm like, oh, really? He's like, yeah. He's like, you wouldn't believe it. He says, I was hill-hill with this guy, and I had this easy eight ball, and I choked, I dogged the eight ball, and my opponent makes it and misses the nine and leaves me the easy nine, and I dogged that one too. It was, he's like, he just, he dogged it twice on the hill, right? And I looked at him, I'm like, hey, man, it happens. And he's like, it happens? 
It happened? You miss an eight and a nine on the hill? That happens? That doesn't happen? <laughs> and he was just like, it was very, very funny. Like, you know, anyway, uh, it's just one of those things. So my point is everyone dogs it. And going going back to my main point, like, there's times I dog it. There's times I don't. There's times I underperform. There's times I overperform. And in the end, and a lot of it's out of my control. Like, a lot of it comes down to whether my opponent takes advantage or not. Like, every set I won... My opponent could have Conrad'd me and just beat me 11-1 in three innings. Every set that I've ever won in pool, counted on them not doing that to me. And so, just because sometimes somebody plays a great set and beats me, like, yeah, I dogged it to Ralph, but if he hadn't played a phenomenal set of pool, you know, I would have, you know, I would have beat him maybe if he hadn't played as good as he played. And then, and then I'd have some hero stories. So why would I feel any worse about my performance? Like, my performance might be good enough to get there with Ralph. You know, if I'd played exactly how I played, it might have gotten there three out of ten sets or four out of ten sets with the guy. So, like, just because he turned in, like, the high end of his range and beat me, like, why should I feel bad about my performance? I don't know. It just, to me, I guess I just feel like there's what you do and your practice and then there's how it plays out. And and so, for me, I guess I think the answer to that question I said, which is, what do you tell yourself when you're upset? Or when do you get upset? It's like, well, I look at it like, did I not do my job? And what is my job? It's like, well, did I prepare? Did I put in the practice coming into the tournament? Did I did I spend the time like mentally preparing, physically preparing, trying to think about the challenges I was going to be up against, like the shot clock on the break template? Like I knew it was one on the spot with a break template, and there was going to be a lot of racks run. I knew we were going to be a shot clock. So what do we do? We practiced our break with a one on the spot, and I practiced with a shot clock, and I and I hit a bunch of balls. And it's like, so I did my preparation. I tried to prepare for the situations I would be in. And then I fought to the best of my ability. And that's all I can do. And then sometimes it's going to work and I'm going to play good. Sometimes it's not going to work or I'm going to play bad. But, like, I guess I just kind of judge myself more on, like, did I do the things that I'm supposed to do? Because kind of like what I go back to with that whole, if you have a good plan, it's just, it's going to work. Like, I feel like as long as I'm sticking to a plan that will work and take me where I want to go, then I don't have to really get too high and low about whether or not, you know, this set went my way or not. I just look at more, am I on the road that I committed to being on that's going to take me where I want to go? And and I, I'm not saying like, oh, you know, you shouldn't be upset. There's If you look at it with the right perspective, you shouldn't have emotion. Like, no, you have emotions after a loss, of course. But for me, like, I, I hold my wins pretty lightly and I don't like, I don't hold on to them too tightly because I take it with a grain of salt that things had to go my way. And I guess I kind of shrug off the losses for the same reason, pretty better than I used to anyway, better than I used to. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yep, yep. I think that does. I uh, I was thinking the other... So there, there's another thing I was thinking as far as... Uh, you know, one of the reasons... You know, getting upset or whatever is that... You know, I'm older. I'm 48 years old. And I'm like... How, I've been playing for a long time. And it's a lot of start and stops with playing and family and work and things. But it's like I put in a ton of work lately you know in the last year and a half or so and it just feels like um like how can I be learning like how can that always be my answer and this is just these are just feelings like and and I'm and I'm kind of laughing and saying well it's because that's the answer but it's like I think that's it it's like I I I did learn a ton and I can and I'll and so what I'd say is I did learn a ton and that's awesome and that's one of the reasons why I went out there if not the whole reason is to keep learning and keep playing it's just 
Um, it's just funny to be 48 years old and have played so long and to be learning. And I guess the reason why, if I was to break that down in my head and say, well, instead of being negative about that, be positive, it's like, well, I haven't been playing a ton of pro tournaments, so it makes sense that there is a ton to learn because, you know, I'm, uh, yeah, because I'm out there doing things that I haven't done a lot of, and I'm just, I'm just trying, so... So that that was that was one thing I wanted to share, and then uh, all right. So then my last takeaway on it, real quick, was David Alcade. We sat, we were lucky enough to sit like on the you know like tables like four five feet six feet away from the table. We're sitting there sweating his match, and that was that was super eye opening. Like I, I'm not a huge pool sweater, and and it was. It's been a mistake because watching David Alcade was really worth the trip for me. Honestly, talk about learning and things learned. Like the way that he composes himself, the way that he strikes the ball, the way that um, you know the shots—not even like the shots or the patterns or anything. It's it's more what he's doing and how he's doing it is very calm. And so that that was super eye-opening. Like that was a massive takeaway, and I have. You know, we went and played that, that later that night or something, and it, I've immediately implemented um, ways to be more calm in my game. And and then when I played Snooker with Terry, I was working on the same thing. And some of it's kind of a pre-shot thing or a, whatever you want to call it, but it's definitely it was it was a huge takeaway. That guy's a that guy's an awesome player, and everyone's awesome, right? All these seven eighty, eight hundred, eight low eight hundred. All these guys are killers. It just I was. He, he struck me, and uh, it, w- it was pretty awesome. So that was a cool takeaway. Yeah, I think that that kind of reminds me of uh, something I was talking about in the last pod, which is, like, what it's like to train in person versus Zoom. And, and like, what comes to mind is that game that people played as, uh, I don't know if you, you ever did this in, in school as, like, first grader or second grader. I did this where they'd say, like, draw a box. Now, to the right of the box, draw a circle. And then they give, like, a series of directions, and you'd have to, like, draw based on their verbal directions. And then at the end, everybody held up their picture, and everybody followed the same directions, but their pictures looked nothing alike. Because some people drew different colored boxes, or different circles, or different size boxes, whatever. People's interpretation of those things were so different. And uh, did you ever do that or no? No, but it sounds... I can do it. it. So it was really... It was weird. And so anyway, I thought about that, and it's like... People that are like watching pool on a video, I'm telling, I don't even, I, okay, I used to, when I was a kid, I, I soaked it up. I watched like a ton of AccuStats matches. I don't really enjoy watching pool on video anymore because I have a pretty good understanding of the strategy of the game and the patterns that they play. But what I do like is when I'm watching ringside and I'm five feet away from the player, it's an entirely different experience. And it's like, and, and it's one that doesn't lend itself well to words and rational thought and analysis because Josh could sit there and say what struck me was how calm he was and it's like yeah what does that really mean I don't know he was calm okay but like that's not powerful but when you sit there and watch a guy handle more pressure than you've faced before in your life and just meet it head on and meet the adversity head on and just be like so you know, you, you're like, you can feel what he's feeling. When you're watching on a video, you're just kind of watching people. You know, you're watching a, a movie of people shooting balls in. But when you're there live, it's like you can you can feel what they're thinking and how they're breathing 
you you could see you, know, you could hear where they take breaths and how they and how they you could really see their pace and how they're what they're doing in the chair and all of that. Like I said, I can't find words for it, but all of it builds up to like an well, experience that's much more multi, you know, much more uh, personal. And you you feel how you would feel in that situation because mm-hmm. we watched that match from from the leg on. And so we know the whole dynamic and the ebb and flow and how the roles are going and what's happening and what, what a person has to come with and what adversity they're facing and what adversity you would be facing if you were in that match. It's it's very it's very intimate when you're that close and it's just it's impossible to catch that through through video and it's impossible to catch that as much through the stands. But when we were five feet away from it, that was a that was a like wasn't life changing for me, but it was game. It was game changing, and it was very, very, very critical. And uh, yeah, and it, it was awesome, man. Yeah, and so like kind of going back to my boot camp boy from last time, it's like that's the biggest thing, man. When people spend three days with me, there are so many things that that you can't stuff it into uh, a syllabus or a, you know, here's you know some some you know I took some note about you know, make sure that I'm do this or that. It's like, there's so many things that people pick up when they're just side by side with me and we're taking turns hitting balls because it's like, just do this. And then they just start doing it. And a lot of it doesn't lend itself well to instruct. And frankly, like we've, I've talked about this before too, but like the conscious controlling self one, you know, instructional analytical part of us is not a very good pool player. So to think that we're just going to learn by understanding analytically and, and rationally all the steps that go into a great pool game and then forcing ourselves to duplicate them to think that that's the path to great pool it's kind of absurd like that's not how anybody gets great like people get great by playing great players and, and sponging and, and osmosis and mirroring and like just competing and, and getting there you know so anyway that's what I think is important and yeah I was I was inspired I thought that was the most fun I had in, a, in that tournament was watching that set with so good shooting David Elkade uh, he, he didn't uh you know, he didn't make the final four, but uh, he played a tremendous game. And I have a lot of respect for him, man. He's a heck of a competitor. So, good. So, uh, okay, so then did I learn? I didn't really learn much on the trip as far as my takeaways because um, it was just – actually, that's kind of in a way that's like I learned something, which is that I'm on the right track. Like I understand that the break is crucial, and that's why I'm, I'm working on it. And I'm going to the 10-ball tournament in Ohio here in a month, and – my 10 ball break is going to be a big part of my consciousness uh, as always. And then, um, and then I learned that, you know, pressure's tough and everybody dogs it and everybody, you know, and that, and that the goal is not to get to where you never dog it. The goal is to get where you sometimes don't dog it. And, and that I sometimes don't dog it and that's great. And so I'm, I'm proud of the fact that I've built myself into a player that doesn't always dog it. And then, um, and then I'm happy with, I, I, I've been kind of, you know, working on some things and it's showing up in my game and I feel pretty good about how I'm hitting them. And then I've got a chance to see better players and how good they can play. And it's inspiring to, to want to keep, keep going. So in terms of like what my, what my focus is on my own personal development, not really a lot different other than just re-inspiring to, to know that the work I'm doing is, is helpful and it, and it can help win me, you know, sets that I might not have won in the past. And that, uh, that there's more work to be done because, had I been able to run a couple more racks off the break during my set with Ralph, maybe I could make it go the other way. And um, maybe that's, you know, I'm only, uh, you know, one one better break and one better shot away from, you know, getting even further next time. So, but, well, potentially depending on how things play out. So anyway, just seeing that I'm far, I've, I've gone far enough to get some ways and that, and that it's not out of my reach to get a little further. So it's exciting. So cool. 
Anything else, Josh, or should we go on to uh, the, the side quest thing? Or? No, I think, yeah, we're good. We're good. Awesome. All right, so topic conversation. Let's see, how do we want to kick So, so I was going to call it side quests. And I guess from an overview, I was thinking about, you know, when we start playing pool and when we, when we all catch the pool bug, we all start with the goal of getting as good as we can. I mean, I, well, not everybody, and I shouldn't speak for everybody. I mean, maybe, but but I think that there's a there's a lot of people that never set that goal. There's a lot of people that never say, I want to see if I can get really good at this game. There's plenty of people that play recreationally and socially. And so for any of those people listening to the podcast, you know, you know, we love you and we're, we're glad to have you as part of our pool community. But I think that what, there's a time that happens to many of us where many of us are bit with a pool bug where we decide at one point that our goal is going to be to get as good as we can. And what that means, like a certain level of winning certain tournaments or beating a certain player or reaching a certain resume or just running a certain number of balls or just playing good, whatever that means, but somewhere, some kind of goal of getting good, right? Pretty yeah. universal. Yep. And then it seems like that would always be the goal. Like that would always be the goal, but sometimes that doesn't happen. It seems like somewhere along the lines, people get diverted. And I think there's reasons for that. But Josh, what are you, what are your thoughts before I go too far? What are your thoughts on side quests? Like, what does that mean to you? Like, why would somebody ever lose sight of their primary objective? Um, I think because people, well, there's a lot of reasons, but some of them could be ego. Some of them could be pride. Some of them could be just not knowing, like not having the right sort of people around you or, or having the right information and so or listening to the wrong information like it's like there's a lot of different reasons why people can get down side, side paths um, but yeah I think some of those things yeah so I have a couple of examples just to kind of get the conversation started so like I'll throw out a few let's see if I can remember so one I've talked about in the past is the fundamentals quest and I guess what I mean by a side quest is like if the primary objective is to play as good as we can then somewhere along the lines somebody decides that to get the primary objective to play as good as we can the way to do that is by achieving some other objective that's like a smaller quest within the major objective so they say if I do XYZ that is going to help me play the best I can that is the way that I'll play the best I can it's if I achieve XYZ or if I do X, Y, Z. If I work on X, Y, Z, yeah. And then, and then they, they, their goal becomes to get X, Y, Z. And they lose, and, they, and that becomes their whole quest and their whole purpose is X, Y, Z, X, Y, Z, X, Y, Z. And they pursue that and they and almost, and, they, and they, sometimes they lose sight of, is this even taking them closer to their goal of overall improvement? But they told themselves a long time ago that if I do X, Y, Z, it's going to get me better and that's the right road. And so they just follow that indefinitely and stubbornly and, 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 and unwaveringly even if it even if it isn't the right road at a certain point and so so some examples would be like so somebody who's like I want to play my best and I want to get great at pool and the way I'm going to do that is by having machine like fundamentals so this I've talked about it before but this is just an example is that then they say now I need to develop machine like fundamentals and and after months and years of stroking into a coke bottle and trying to make themselves into a machine 
their goal is now a quest for fundamentals. Like that is their that is their goal. Like if you ask them, like, why do you play pools? Like, well, I'm trying to improve my fundamentals. And it's like, they, and they take it for granted that well, that's because if I do that, then I'll get better. But it's like, here's the thing. Or if someone asks them, how do you get good at pool, or what's holding this player back or that player back? Depend. No matter the level of the player, they'll say fundamentals potentially. Yeah, they're just, they're absolutely because they've decided in their mind, they've decided that fundamentals equates to improvement, and that was a that was a a decision that they made to believe that and to act as if that's true. But they never question or challenge or revisit that because they've they've already they are they're operating with a. It's almost like um, a faulty assumption. It's like when people are doing a diagnostic troubleshoot, and it's like you know. You just assume that um, it's like I just read Zen of the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, and there was a scene where the guy was like, he had decided that he had gas in his tank, and he knew that the problem was an electrical system. So he spent like hours and hours trying to troubleshoot his motorcycle, and called off his trip, and hauled the bike back, and canceled his vacation with his son, and and then and then it turns out there was actually had been no gas in the tank, but he had already made the faulty assumption that that the issue was electrical based on blah, blah, blah. It doesn't matter. So anyways, like, I think about that. Like, like we're troubleshooting our pool game. That's what we're doing. And you can't, when you're a troubleshooter, you don't get to make a bad assumption. And so to, to sit there and declare fundamentals are my road to success, and then I'm going to take that as, 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 like, doctrine. Like, if you do that, you're in danger of going down a path that might not actually lead you where you originally thought it would lead you. Other examples that I could think of were like, um, oh, let's see here. I've got them written down because I, I knew that this would happen to me. So another example would be, uh, okay, an information quest. That was a good one. Is uh, people who are like, pool is a game of knowledge. It's a game of strategy. It's a game of knowledge of how the cue ball works. It's a game of knowledge of safeties. And it's a game of knowledge of, it's just a game of knowledge. And so... Therefore, I'm going to go on this quest to be incredibly knowledgeable. And I'm going to know how to, you know, this is why, uh, you know, I'm going to learn to outmove people. And I'm going to learn the right shots. And I'm going to learn the right patterns. And I'm going to learn the right strategies. And I'm going to know more about why balls skid and how the template breaks. And I'm going to know, I'm going to know so much about which balls in the rack are dead. And I've watched all the videos about, you know, how to break a nine ball rack. And I've watched, you know, I, I know so much. And so somewhere along the lines, players decide, Pool is a game of acquiring knowledge. The most knowledgeable player will be successful. And then they go on these long quests to where it's like, the fact is, is that, you know, all of these things are important to a point, you know, fundamentals and knowledge, but like, I don't know. I mean, it didn't really seem like what got Carlo Beato across the finish line was that he was more knowledgeable than the rest of the field necessarily. Like I, I didn't maybe poor example, but like who says that, you know, why did we make that assumption that, if we got really, really, really knowledgeable, that that would just translate to pool greatness. It's like, well, the fact is, is that there's problems with that. And there's problems with the fundamentals. The problems with the knowledge thing is, is that um, self one, you know, the, the teller, the analytical part of us is not very good at performing. And that the people that, that live in their head too much and focus too much on, on the analytical side, oftentimes they struggle to execute. And, and it's almost like, it's almost like people that are on a, side quest for for knowledge it's almost like they have a different hobby than I do because I'm a competitor where I'm trying to get better and they're just trying to like play a game of like who knows the most and who could who could talk about it and and this one came to mind because when we were playing at that billiard club there was a player who was like every single shot he shot 
he was talking about like why he missed or how he, you know how the spin took on that or how it lengthened because of this or that ball you know with the other spin that ball worms its way in the hole or just just like it's like he's doing this nonstop performance about how knowledgeable he is, but he's not playing well and it's just like what's your goal here, man? That's it. Just makes me wonder like why. What is, is your goal to play well or is your goal to impress everybody with how much you know and at times do you feel betrayed because like I know so much how come I haven't gotten better and then you just feel like you were betrayed by talent but it's like no you betrayed yourself when you made yourself this pro- proclamation that knowledge would elevate you above your competition and now you're feeling betrayed and stuck because it's not panning out that way but you never revisited that premise yep yeah it's uh it's just it's interesting to watch from the outside to watch the guy <laughs> the guy playing billiards and to have him just nonstop prattling information and spewing information. He was playing a young player that uh, that he could play some billiards. The kid that worked there and and uh, it was just interesting to watch because I'm sitting there thinking, well, are are you a pool player or are you a commentator? And so I just I just think it's just. And I know for myself, man, it's like I, I've got off on side journeys and side distractions. And that's that's what I work on myself is like, hey, what what am I doing? Like, what is my mind? Like, so I, I understand that, that I can do these things, too. And, and it's like it's but it's more of a, a thing where trying to be self-aware, trying to watch and see what I'm doing and correct those things and, and tamp them out and and try to just work on the performance side of it and the and the, the actual playing side of it so yeah so i was i was i've been i've been kind of wondering like why do people fall into that and there's a few reasons but let's start with the big one first it's like i'll tell you all i can say is and all real competitors know this there's nothing more difficult than than competing and holding yourself accountable for improving because when you're trying to improve there's a hundred things that you need to do to get better and ten of them you love doing any of them you can do and it's not that bad and ten of them are like very 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 difficult challenging for a number of reasons sometimes they're overwhelmingly difficult sometimes they're overwhelmingly terrifying Sometimes they're overwhelmingly, there's just negative emotions of it, feelings of incompetence and helplessness and stuckness and, and, and insufficiency and, and, and victimization and all these things like, I don't know how I can do any better than this and how can, you know, I've already tried so hard and I just, so there's, and there's some things that are so scary and so, so uncomfortable that we would rather do anything in the world except for face that. And so one reason people might go on these side quests is because if they tell themselves that pool, if they like learning stuff and understanding kicking systems, and if they like, you know, that's what they're going to do. It's like they're on a side quest where they're going to know every kicking system under the sun and be able to talk about, you know, point on the wall and plus two this and, and literally just sit there and, you know, talk about, point, you know, how you can adjust for tables and all this stuff. But it's like they'd rather do that than face their fears. And it's like some, and you know, did you ever read 1984? Sorry, random. It Probably you in high, yeah, in high school. Okay, so there's this scene where the guy gets taken to the Ministry of Love, and he's going to be tortured. And they t- they tell him they, there's references to like Room 101. We're going to take him to Room 101, and and, and he uh, and he asked the guy when he was going to be tortured. He's like, "What's in Room One Room 101?" And nobody would tell him. Nobody would tell him what's in Room 101. And finally, when he gets to Room 101, 
the guy, he's, it's been like months that they take him to room 101 and they say, you don't, you know what's in room 101. Everyone knows what's in room 101. It's the worst thing imaginable. And it's like everybody, and it, for him it was rats. He had this like phobia that he didn't even know, but somewhere in the deep of his subconscious, he had this horror of rats. And so for him, it was customized something about rats. And it's like, basically everyone has a room 101. Everyone has something that's like overwhelmingly difficult and scary. And we shy away from it, man. And so, so sometimes people go on side quests because they want to shy away from the hard things that they have to do. And, and they want to steer into the things that they enjoy doing. What do you think of that as one reason? Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. I'm just thinking about my own side quest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because we talk about it, like, yeah, we I, we can get into that later if you want, or we can talk about it now, but, like, yeah. I, uh, you know, we talked about it coming back, and it's like, I have a phobia of playing in front of people. I would say had at this point almost, like throughout my career, throughout my life, I just do not like playing in front of people. It's awful with pool because you're always playing in front of people. And the better I got, the more people are watching. And so it's just, it's an awful thing to have to go through. And, uh, but, but, so what that did was it caused me a side quest where I'm like, I'm just going to out volume this. So I'm just going to go to my garage and hulk out and play, you know, thousands of racks of pool and tens, you know, dozens and dozens of hours, and I'm just going to build this monster game and all this stuff. And so that became a little bit of a side quest for me where I'm like, volume, volume, volume. And then I realized, well, shoot, man, like I can do all that. But then when I go out and play and someone starts watching and, and people start chirping at me, because that's what happens in a pool room. Like when I put my cue together, people pull up chairs like locally, and then they start chirping because they want to be part of what you're doing and be part of the action. They have their own side quest, right? Where they want to be part of the action. So it's like, it's been, it was screwing me up. So, so I started playing more at pool rooms and working, working through that and, uh, in challenging myself to go out and play in, in in situations where people are watching and things like that, and then that became another side quest because now I I, I had this narrative or this side this thing where well I'm having a tough time finding action finding action finding action people I'm trying to call people get them to play well Demi challenged me on the way home and he's like you could play this person you could play this person you could play this person and I'm like it just cut to me man it cut to me in my gut and I'm like. Yeah, you're right, man. It's like I get why I was on my side quest of uh, mm. with, with with playing players that are not at my level, but publicly. Like that was my baby steps, man. My training wheels to get out of my garage. And now, uh, Demi challenged me to, to up up my game and play people that are more challenging to me. And that and I. So what I did was, um, I immediately got on and messaged three or four people that he named off. I immediately messaged him. I'm like, all right, let's do it, man. I'm going to play these guys. And they're guys, um, you know, one of the guys I had played before, but I came up with all these excuses why I don't want to play him again. And it's like, because he's tough action. And so, and, and, and I, whatever, man. It's like, I got him the last time we played and, and uh, it's just, it, whatever my bullshit is, right? It's just like, I, it was, I got past it and I challenged myself to get off of my other side quest and to move forward and, uh, and to challenge myself and get up. Like, I'm just talking about comfort zone, man, like facing fears and facing all these fake, ex fake reasons in my head to, to avoid discomfort. So, so just to kind of stick to the, not to say you're not sticking to the format, but just to recap in the format that we're talking. So your original side quest was if, and I'm not, and by the way, when I say a side quest, I'm not saying that there's not value because 
in, in all these things, knowledge, fundamentals, all these things. Oh, yeah, for sure. They, I look at it like a chain, and each one is a link. And so, originally, you said, volume is my answer. I am on a quest for volume. Volume will equal improvement. And so, you were so focused on volume that you maybe... T- and I'm not saying this was bad either because you didn't do this for 20 years and not get better. And that's where I think that you're not like, you're not in a trap. I would say that there's healthy learning, there's unhealthy learning. And I think for you, what you did that was right was you were on a side quest for volume. And then after six months, you went back and said, how's this working for me? And the answer is it's working very well in a lot of ways, but it hasn't improved in some key areas, which is playing in front of an audience. So therefore... I need to address that. So then you started playing in front of an audience and you were, you know, running that for a while, but it was maybe against competition that wasn't challenging enough. And so then you got to look at, now you're revisiting that and saying, how is that working? Well, that's good, except that I might need to book more losers. And, you, you know, you have these reasons why you might not want to make these games, but then at the heart of it is it sucks to lose and it's not, it's not much fun. And so, but then you're like, okay, well, now that I've identified that, I will adjust my sales once again and steer right in and I'm going to go ahead and book a few losers or not necessarily, I'm not saying you're going to lose, but you know what I mean? <laughs> like you're going to book a few sessions that, that might not be very fun. Yeah. But, but that, and so I actually think that that's a, a good example of how to avoid <laughs> falling into a, a, a side quest. Like I think that you're doing, you're constantly making decisions as to what you think you need to do to improve, but then you're revisiting it and you're changing your ideas and your, your beliefs about what has to happen based on the feedback that your performance is. I, I think that's perfect. Yeah, and I, I, I'll pat myself on the back to me and I'll say, when I, when I was thinking about it, I'm like, man, I think I'm doing good. I think I'm doing it right. Yeah, like, that's I, can, I can get down a little bit of a side quest or a tiny rabbit hole, but then eventually I'll see where it falls short and I'll adjust. And what, what we're seeing, I think, Dom, is that we have seen people that have been on decade-long side quests and that is not effective. That's my opinion. Yeah, I, you know. yeah, no, for sure. And so, so, and I'm, and I'm now, I'm, you know, I'm trying to think. I, I kind of feel like I try to operate similar to that. I mean, I, for sure, we've all gotten stuck on stuff. I mean, don't don't get me wrong. We all get stuck on stuff where, you know, maybe we overemphasize one thing for a while or we get too much down one thing. But I think we're both, you know, kind of self-aware in that way, and we're very challenging of our of our own. You know, we're constantly challenging our action plans and what we're doing, and and then we talk to each other, and and that's great to have a good partner that yep. you know can look at stuff and, and we challenge play us with and, each other. Yeah. We have, di- I mean, we have different skill sets. So when you and I play together, like we literally practice side by side and drill, and you can see some things that I do that that you don't do, and I can see things that you do that I don't do, and we can learn from that and be challenged by that. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? I think that's a big thing for us both. And I think the one way that I would say I don't go off on many side quests is that at the end of the day, I always look at, like, my I'm so laser focused on my overall goal, which is, is my goal is improvement, and that's, that's what I want. And the reason that competition is meaningful to me is because it forces you to take the path. You know, it's like it's like the difference. I was talking to somebody about the difference between eight ball and nine ball. How an eight ball you oh, get to yeah, pick yeah. your pattern, and in nine ball the table forces you. Like pool is a game where improving at pool, it's like playing nine ball. Like you don't get to decide what order to run the balls in because that's easy. You have to run them in the order they lay on the table, yeah. like it or not. And that's how if you want to get better at pool, man, one of the reasons that competition is so meaningful is because you have to do what you have to do even if it's scary and hard and difficult. And if you take that out and you say, I'm going to play pool 
the way I want to play pool and work on the things that are fun to work on and see where that gets me, then, in, like, I don't want to say you're not a real competitor, but you're not a, you're not a real competitor. You're, like, in my mind, you're kind of letting yourself off the hook. Like, the whole point of competition, the whole point of saying, I am going to be the best that I can be, is that when you make that commitment to yourself, you know what you're signing up for, which is looking in room 101 and facing those rats. Like, that's it. That's what you're signing up for. And if you if you accept anything less than that and just say, well... I'll, I'll I'll try and see where it goes. It's like, well, you're gonna you're gonna squirm away and find yourself on a side quest, and and you're gonna be very you're gonna be the most knowledgeable guy in the pool hall that can't run the table. I'll tell you that. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So that's one reason is people shy away because of fear of facing discomfort. Now, there's another reason that you mentioned, Josh. You said ego. So tell me, what do you what do you think that meant when you said ego is a reason? I I was gonna also add personality type. I mean, it's sure. a little bit different because if you study personality types in people if you maybe if you don't know if you don't know you don't you don't know what you don't know but like people have different personality types and so i i think ego and personality types can can lend to um kind of getting stuck on a side quest and kind of stubbornness so yeah I, i mean if you can't admit that you don't know or you can't admit that what you've been doing isn't working that can be ego driven you know like well if I admit that then everything um you know I'm not like this 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 player that I think I am or this person that I think I am it's uh you know we all struggle with ego and and uh you know ego pushes a lot of of uh pushes us in a lot of like forward momentum uh because we're in a hierarchy and we're playing and we're fighting right to to for for those points but it, it can also you can get cra- you can get caught in it, trapped in it, and stuck in it. And uh, yeah, I just I think like I've seen people talk about the way they view the game, and it just you know they get stuck on on these side quests like we're talking, and, and uh, I don't know, Deb, help bail me out, man. Yeah, like, I you, think you that probably can tell. I, I, I there's a question that I always liked, which is. Would you rather be right or would you rather get better? You know, it's like there's plenty of people I know that it seems like they'd rather be right and not get better than they would rather be wrong and have to do it a different way but then improve because they have an open mind about, you know, being corrected. And it just seems like for a lot of players, they would rather be right and not get better. It's a sponge in the bowl, right? We talk. I don't know if we talked about it on the podcast. Yeah, I've talked about that. And it's like... Or you've talked about it. Recap. Go ahead, recap. Sorry. Well, just like if what kind of, and that's kind of a personality type thing. It's like, are you a sponge or are you a bull or are you a little bit of both? It's like, you, like I think. So the sponge is somebody who's like, so the bull is somebody who's really, really stubborn and will never change their mind or their beliefs. And the sponge is somebody who's so wishy-washy that anytime anybody makes a suggestion, they change their game every day because they're, you know. And, and so there's a, a balance where you've got to be open-minded enough to, to find, you know, outside, you know, feedback and, and to, you know, challenge yourself. Without being so wishy-washy that you don't even have a baseline game because every day you're you're starting from scratch and you're kind of scattered with the wind. You've got to be able to filter information. You know, you've got to be able to listen to a bunch of information from people that you trust, filter through it, be open-minded to like accepting what belongs, and then trusting yourself to know how it comes together and what you need to filter out. That's it. Yeah, which is so impossibly hard to do, but. It's the that's part of the journey is trying to figure out how to do that, how to turn those dials. I think, and we know people that are very bullish. Like, uh, you know, there's someone we know that I don't know. Should, like, maybe he 
Nah, it doesn't matter. I'll just say that. Can I tell about the braking really hard? Oh, Is sure, it? sure, sure. So there's someone we know that brakes like full speed, absolutely wants to crush the brake. And it's like, you can tell when he brakes. It's like, every time he brakes, it's like, well, this is how Shane Van Boney hit the balls, and you got to break like this. And if you don't break 23 miles an hour and pop the cue ball back, then you're a sucker. And it's like, <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, it's just kind of funny, though, because it's like sometimes there's tables where maybe on that table a, a medium-speed 18-mile-an-hour break is more effective. And, and, and when you break harder, the balls react differently than when you break medium-speed. And so if the, the side pocket balls behind the one aren't going, maybe you'd be better off with a little bit of a lesser hit. But But instead of, like, being interested in that or like changing up the strategy it's like nope good players can smash the rack at 23 and pop the rock every time and make a ball and will something in and so like they just decided that that's that's how it's done and they're and they're dying on that hill and they're breaking they've broken very inconsistently for many years and it's a limiting it could be a limiting factor in this person's career and but they're not they're not open for discussion just close case you know and when in the past when i've at when i've said hey I want to talk to you about about your break. And, and I'm not a guy that's going to be doling out advice to anybody. I got my own problems. But, I mean, to me, if I see, a, 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 if I care about somebody and, and we're training together or playing together, I, I do, I want to share something a little bit once in a while. And he shared some, he shares stuff with me. And I'm more like a uh, bull sponge mix i'm not like perfect but i feel like i'm a good a good mix of bull and sponge so so and he's good at sharing information with me like very um infrequently but but it's very helpful so i want to kind of pay him back and i'm watching and i'm sitting there thinking well breaking's all about changing your speed and your angle to try to pocket paws right it's speed and angle what angle are you coming in from and what speed are you hitting them at there's a dynamic here yeah it's you and the rack yeah yeah it's not just you Yeah. yeah exactly so i'm like it just seems very straightforward to me and when i watch players you have to adjust you have to adjust your speed you have to adjust your angle and that's how you dial in breaking a rack and i'm not some expert at breaking by any stretch but i i I, I'm around a lot of like players and I see what they're doing and I watch them on video and it's like they're changing speed and they're changing angle and so I'm just kind of tapping them on the shoulder and I'm like hey man like let's talk about this and it's just absolutely nope nope we're not talking about it. this is the way it is don't talk to me about my break and I'm just like thinking well okay and, and meanwhile there was a time it's better now but he, he would pop the cube off the table in a race to nine two or three times and so that's that to me at the level that we're that we're playing at is just a kid like popping it off once is probably a, a loser for this not for the set or whatever but but kind of i mean it's a big deal and uh and it's just it, it's it's fine and, and it, it's okay it's okay everything's fine it's okay no it just it's one of those things where it's like just very very 100 bull no sponge and i just think man it'd be cool if uh for overall development if it's just a little bit more sponge and it's not like i'm sitting there you know like showering ideas and we're just, it's not some freaking brainstorm it. session you're, man you're, it's like i'm like a i'm like a, a you desert sit, bro I just you sit back run. for three years playing <laughs> sets without saying anything then after three years of watching him pop the ball off the table like, hey man food for thought like here's what here's what works for me on the break and he's like no you're not shane yeah 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 exactly nope needs to be hit hard and popped and it's just and it's like even shane doesn't hit a 23 every time i mean he's gonna change speed and angle and that and that's that's it so <laughs> That's it, man. So, so, so very that's a, good. So, that's an example. So we've come up with uh, so a couple reasons. One is to avoid the room 101, the thing you're scared of. Another thing is because 
you'd rather be right than good. And there's some, and, and oftentimes it's because it's something that you're good at. Like maybe somebody really uh, is good at something. Like I'm really, really good at, uh, you know, okay. So like maybe there's a, a guy who's just like, I've seen this too, where people are really hung up on stroke shots and power shots and like difficult shots, difficult shots, difficult shots. And all they want to do is work on difficult shots, difficult shots. And I'm watching them play and I'm like, man, that's not going to get you better because you already hit difficult shots as well as I do. But there's like 18 areas where you're spewing and you're not like, you're not playing nearly as well in other areas as I play. And so you can sit there and try to work on your difficult shots all day long, but you already hit them so good that it's going to be hard to make improvement in those areas. And meanwhile, it's going to be hard to make improvement. Even if you improve in those areas, as long as you're spewing in all these other areas for like, for example, if a guy scratched on every break, just as a stupid example, if he scratched at every break and then he was practicing hard shots, it's like at some point you'd be like, hey man, it doesn't matter how good you get at hard shots. If you scratch at every break, like you've got another problem that you got to fix. But it's like, no, I'm going to shoot my, I just, I'm going to turn into where I never miss and then I'll be okay. So I've seen, I had multiple students that do this where they're just practicing stroke shots and stroke shots and stroke shots. And then I, you know, I'm telling them like, hey, don't worry. Like, that's not what's holding you back right now. Like you're, you know, if you're a 550 Fargo and you're, and you're not winning local tournaments, it's not because you're not drawing the ball 20 feet. It's, it's something else is going on here that we need to look at, but it's like, they just, I, and I tell them and I come out of the bathroom and I see what shots they're practicing. They're practicing power draws. <laughs> and I'm just like, my God, like, no, no. You know, somebody asked me, can we work a little bit on length of the table draws? I'm like, nope. <laughs> no, we can't because that's not where you, when you, if you get to be 750 and you want to try to figure out how to get to 800, then we can go back and look at those power draws. But like you have, you don't need, you don't need it. Like I can, I'll, I'll tell you what I can, I can play I'll play a 700. I'll spot them the power. I'll, I'll spot them length of the table draws. How about that? It's like just not necessary. And, and it's not anyway, that's an example of a side quest. It's like, I'm just going to be, I'm just going to shoot everything in the hole. I'm just going to shoot everything in the hole. And, uh, and not get, you know, where they're, where they're leaking in other areas. And so, so, okay. So the point of why do people do that is one reason is ego. One reason is afraid of 101. One reason is because people just like working on that part of the game. And so they tell themselves, this game is about doing what I love the best. So whoever's the best at this area that I love practicing, that's what's going to, you know, that's so, going to get there. Yeah. So people that I love, love working on their form. It's like, this is a game of form. And then they just, I'll just work on my form all the time. Or people that like pattern. I, I'm a guy that loves analytics and patterns. I could sit there and tell myself, this is a game of strategy. And so I'm just going to be the, you know, study strategy. And and it's like, well, that's great. Except I don't think that I, I lose out of tournaments because I don't know how to play patterns. I think I've got other problems. You know what I mean? Now, that doesn't mean that you can't, strength and strengths and use them to set you apart in many ways and I think that's great but there's a point where it goes from being you know developing your strengths so that you can be explosive in parts of the game to being pigeonholed as the guy that shoots straight but scratches on every break and at some point you gotta challenge yourself and so so those are so we, we've talked about is like a definition of like what a side quest is why people might go down those side quests and get stuck and 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 some of some examples of those and I think then how do you keep from going on a side quest? And I think we kind of talked about that, too, is how to avoid it, which is you have to be a couple things. So we talked about being – we talked about, first of all, at the top of your questions, at the top, your goal always has to be your, your the ultimate – the bottom line is the bottom line. Am I getting better? Am I getting better? Am I breaking through? Am I improving? 
And if you hold yourself to any other measuring stick, then it's kind of a side quest. Like if you say, well, I'm not getting better yet, but wait until my stroke is perfect, then they'll see. It's like, no, that's a side quest. Like, are you, are you improving? Yes or no? Like it's, that's the, that's the first thing. If you're using any other compass, then you're setting yourself up to score them away from something difficult. Thoughts? Yeah. 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 It's just, it's so, but it's, so my question, Demi, is, which is almost impossible to answer because everybody's so individual and everybody's kind of stuck in their own mind and their own, their own stuff. It's just, what tips do you have to, to, to help somebody become self-aware in the moment and try to okay, figure so there's, that? Like well, it, which is almost impossible. It's like, well, how do you, like defining like the... The definite, well, like how okay. do you find peace in your life? So the first or, yeah. question though is, am I is to, to stay laser focused on am I getting better? And anybody that's listening, if you haven't, if you can't answer yes to that question, then you are not doing it right. Like pool is not a game that where there's the only reason to be stuck is if you're going the wrong direction. Like that's it. I, I, there's no way that you could put a time and effort in this game and not see improvement unless you're not putting the pieces together right. I mean. I think. Do you disagree or disagree with that? No, or I agree with that. I just would say, I could just see from a, someone's standpoint to say, well, I mean, uh, uh, well, my answer would be, you, you, you don't know me. Like the person, on the, or the person on the talk show, you don't know me. Yeah. You don't know anything about me. Everyone's jeering at him. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> you know, like, you always see that on like the, the, the old talk shows. Like Jerry like, Springer or something? Yeah, 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 yeah You yeah. don't know me. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. No, that's funny. I just... Yeah, it's like, how do you, you know, and then it goes with shameless plug for you with MM Pool Boot Camp, but it's like, well, how do you know if you don't know, and what? how do you figure it out if you can't figure it out, and it's like, well, then you got to get with the right person to help, and it's and it's going to be more than just, it's it's got to, it's put help you put together a plan, That that's what I would say, like, I'm fortunate, I've been traveling for 15 years, and so, like, I, I get, I get the, 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 the full-blown you know, boot camp all the time. We talk every day. So it's been great. And I have some other friends, you know, Brian Brecky's helped me tremendously with my game. He's given me like tremendous advice and, and, and critical points. So I'm, I'm very fortunate to have some really, really high level peers. But if you don't have high level peers and you're out there and you're on your own sort of, and you're trying to figure it out, I could see a person being like, believe you, I can't figure it out. And you think you know everything. And I'm not saying they're saying that, but like, <laughs> like I'm like, how, what do you do for that person that says, how do I know what I don't know and how do you figure it out? Well, okay, so the first thing is that you have to assume, you have to operate with these assumptions that that uh, that if you're not getting better, you're, you're doing something wrong and that if you're putting in time and energy. And then and yep. you have to, and the ultimate compass has to be, am I getting better? That's the ultimate compass and you can't lose sight of that. That's the first part. And then if that is your compass and you're like, I'm not getting better. How do I put in the then, right word? Then, then some of the questions you can ask are like, okay, let's look at, you know, let's look at where, how are things actually playing out? Like, for example, I'll, I'll give you an example. I watched, um, I watched a match and I'm really proud of this guy. I have a, uh, one of my, uh, one of the guys I've worked with a little bit and, uh, really, really good guy. I'm rooting for him a lot. And so he played a money match where it, uh, about a month ago, it didn't go so well. He, uh, he lost and he missed a number of key shots and I'm not going to get into that. I'm not going to build it. I'll just say there was a specific situation that was a recurring situation where he was coming up short and failing to execute. And this was like, they were just, you know, chokes. That's what there's any, to call it anything else would be to confuse the issue. It was a series of chokes and 
And when I talked to him about how the match went, he told me, well, I was, you know, like, I don't even remember. It was like, you know, I was struggling with my break and, you know, something was, you know, I was dealing with something with the, the way the table was playing. And I'm like, no, nope, no, that's not it. Because if that was it, then it would have burned you here and here on that transition. It wouldn't have burned you on that straight at eight ball in the corner. <laughs> oh, gosh, you know what yeah. I mean? That, that's yeah, not yeah, how that yeah, plays sure. out. Like, yeah. like we could be at a, like, this is not a, you know, this is, I'm sorry, but no, that's not what happened here. And so I told him, I said, here's what I saw happen. And I just called him on it. I said, I'm not like, and I'm not shame on you. There's nothing. In fact, I'm proud of you. If you get in a spot where you're choking, good for you to face, put yourself in a tough situation where you're going to get, you know, tested. I mean, that's to me, that's should be, it's the people that don't choke that I'm kind of ashamed of. It's like, that's the people I shame on you. If you haven't choked in the last few months, then you've been hiding under a rock and you need to get out there. (laughs) So that's how I feel. Duck in the tough stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, I, I think there's a badge of pride. Like I, on the one hand, it's never fun to blow it against Ralph's UK. On the other hand, it's like, I could tell you two big tournaments I've choked out of in the last few months. Can you? So you know what I mean? It's yeah. like, that's how I feel. But anyway, um, the uh, so I told him, I said, no, 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 this is the issue. And, and here's what I think is causing it is here's the person you're playing. Here's what they're doing. Here's where I think the narrative is creating that's causing this pressure. Here's what I suggest you do to handle it. Now, I'm not suggesting that he he didn't like play it exactly the way I'd play it maybe with how he mentally prepares or whatever but what he did is he owned it he said yeah that's that's true that makes sense and because here's the thing is he wants to win more than he wants to be right and more than you know and so he he thought about it and he's like yeah you're right I can see how I I didn't you know I I didn't put myself in a spot where I was ready to take the win and then I don't know I might have made zero impact I don't want to like take credit for something he did but like he prepared hard and you know what he, he rematched the guy and I got to watch a little bit of it the other night and he finished the guy off it was 17-17 going to 21 and he won the last four games and he you know he did what he needed to do where before he would have maybe not completed those racks uh, you could tell he put himself in a state I mean he, I could tell watching a play he was in a totally different state of mind than he was the first match and that took looking in the mirror owning up to the things that weren't working putting together a plan to deal with them now in the real world, that doesn't always mean you get to win the second set. That's not how that works. But in that set, but in this case it did. Which in is this awesome. case, the actual Aguapo. So the, yeah, yeah, in, the this actual case, Aguapo, exactly. in this case, in this case, that's the point. Is is that it doesn't mean you're always going to have it win, but it means that sometimes it does work. At that time, it did work, and it that puts you in a position to have it. Give yourself a chance. You give yourself a good opportunity. Yeah. You know, and and so I was really proud of him. And so that's yeah, an example that of great. of how you can be. So you have to look at what's not working in a set and look at it and say, you know, why isn't this working? And, you know, realistically, what what went wrong? And it is hard because you're right about something, Josh, is you don't always know what you don't know. For example, if somebody misses a, a shot, you know, it's like all runs end by a miss. But it's like, was that a miss because of a, you failed to execute a shot that was routine? Was it a miss because you put yourself in a bad spot and had a tough shot that you shouldn't have been in that spot? Or was it a miss because you there was something you didn't know about, there was knowledge about patterns or cue ball that you were lacking, that even you left yourself in a suboptimal angle to where it was harder to get good position. So you left yourself a bad positional play and then you landed out of line and then you missed. It's like, well, the issue wasn't the miss. The issue wasn't even that you got out of line. The issue is the way you tried to get it to position. And so, but you might not know that. And so that's where... Yes, seeking out knowledge from better players. And I'm not just talking knowledge. I'm talking seeking out, you know, opportunities to watch better players, play with better players, talk to better players, and train with better players. 
yes, yes, yes. And yes, the top players do that. They call it tournaments because they play better players or they play great players all the time. They talk to each other all the time. They're constantly, you know, sparring and, and, and getting feedback and setting up shots and talking through all these situations. So yes, top players, just because they don't necessarily do a, you know, a training with me or they don't necessarily do a training with, you know, they don't necessarily have a coach, but all players that are top players are constantly challenging their own ideas and, and, and fighting for ways to make improvements. So, good. And before I wrap up, there was um, there's something else I wanted to mention about why I think people get stuck in this trap. And it's something you and I have talked about, but I think it'll be interesting, is a lot of these things work until they don't work. And that's where it gets dangerous. So, like, when you're playing... Let's just let's just pick three levels of players, just to keep it simple. Let's say that we've got recreational players, like buddies that don't even play pool, but they come over to your house, have a couple beers, and hit balls around. Then you've got like, you know, or maybe a fourth level of players. Then you got like local league players that play leagues, and they and they play, you know, good, not great. And then you've got some like tournament players that play really good, you know, winning local tournaments. And then you've got like professional level players. So we'll, we'll just break it down to four just levels arbitrarily. What works to get to where you get beat one group of guys? It might work to a point, but there might be a point at which it no longer scales higher. So, like for example, when uh, yours was volume, that was always your your big uh, your big narrative was like, I'm going to be the guy that puts in more volume than anyone until I can just beat everybody all the time. And right away, like you could always beat recreational players, and then you got to where you could always beat league players, and then you got to where you could like usually beat most, you know, a lot of local players. But then, at some point, you had to question that. That, that was almost like you were talking about how volume had been like a, a side quest. And maybe not so much this year, but at different times, it was always like your fallback. Like, I, I know if I just put in volume, I could just put in a bunch of hours, you know, outwork my competition and show up and kind of walk through the uh, walk through the tournaments, right? That's worked for me forever. Like, it's, since okay. I started. I didn't want to put words in your mouth. No, 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 dummy. That, that has worked exactly how it's worked for me. And that's why I, and we talked about this, and that, that's why I got stuck on that. And then out here, I realized, well, I'm not going to work out, work, uh, you know, Polish bots. I mean, it's just not going to happen. So, so like this, it made me realize, like, I got to a certain point. Like, I, I matched a guy. He was right around high 600s, almost 700, and I lost. And then I'm like, I'm like, I saw the mistakes that he made and the, the holes that he has. And I'm like, you know what? Give me two weeks. I'm going to really put in volume and really prepare, and I can and I can get him. And I did, and it worked. And I'm like, ha, 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 look at that, it worked. But then I go out to these tournaments, and I'm playing Sosi in Virginia, and I'm playing this other Euro, Eurobot here, and, and I'm playing guys that are hulked out, and, like, like even the guy that, like, just everybody, man. It's like, it just doesn't work that way. It's like I have to figure out a, a different way. And, and I don't even have that time. Like, I don't have that time. That's the problem. It's like wife, kids, family, whatever, I don't have unlimited time. And, and it, before it used to be, I'll just outwork everybody. Well, everybody's working that hard and way harder and traveling and playing more. And so it's just, it, it works to a certain point and it works until it doesn't work. So that's yeah, it. that's, that's what I, I thought that was a good example is because it's like, you know, this whole thing where it's like, I'm going to outwork people and then, and then beat them all the time. And then if they ever beat me, then I'll just put in a bunch more work until I can beat them all the time. Like that, that, and, I'm, and I, you could replace work with knowledge. 
You can replace it with fundamentals. You can replace it with any side quest. Any side quest you go on where you're strengthening up a chain, it'll work for you as long as you're playing people that have broken links in other places in their chain. Yep. And so, and then what happens, by the way, is it forms a narrative. And that narrative is, here's a, here we talked about narratives last time. One narrative is like, I'll play against guys. They're going to beat me in the beginning. And then I'm going to see what doesn't work. I'm going to get better in those areas. And then I'm going to get to where I can beat them all the time. Yeah. That's a narrative. Well, the funny part is, is that when you're a recreational player that just got a pool table along with your friends and they beat you half the time, you can tell yourself that narrative and you can get better and you can beat your friends all the time because they're not very good. And then you can go into a pool league and join the APA and you start as a three or four and you're playing other threes, fours, and fives. And you can say, I'm going to get better until I can beat these guys all the time. And you know what? You can. You can become an APA seven or eight and you can get to where you're beating all those guys all the time. I mean, excluding handicap. And then you could sit there and start entering tournaments. And then maybe you play some local tournament players and you're like, okay, you can beat me now. Now I'm going to get to where I can beat you all the time. And maybe, maybe if you put it enough volume and enough effort and enough, you know, learning, maybe you can even get to where you're beating a lot of the local tournament players a lot of the time. But when you go to the U.S. Open nine ball, there is no way that you're going to just get to the point. Like if you get out there and you get beat by Shane and you get beat by Filler and you get beat by, you know, Conrad and Ralph Zuckay, you're not going to sit there and say, okay, you're beating me now, but I'm going to go into my lab and I'm going to work on my game and I'm going to come back and I'm going to just beat all you guys all the time. It's like not happening. That, that does not scale. It does not scale. And so not only does the actual side quest, which is my hammer that I'm going to use is volume and I'm going to go put in volume until I can beat these guys. It, that, doesn't work because a like you said these guys are you're not going to outwork Clenty Kachi like that's not happening here so and you're not going to outwork Fedor Gorst and you're not going to put in more sets it's like that's not you're not going to outwork them and then secondly um oh shoot I lost my train of thought secondly uh it's not even necessarily the weak link in your game you know it's like if you're neglecting other weak links in your game then strengthening volume 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 isn't isn't shoring up your 10 ball break you know what yeah, I mean? yeah. so it's like you could put in volume 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 and then they go out there and you break dry a few times and they don't and you're gonna beat you eight to two it's like well how did the volume help your 10 ball break and this was an issue of generating opportunities or you know so it's like i don't know it doesn't it doesn't always fix the the real issue so so at some point that strategy but the reason why people might think that their side quest is so sneaky good is because it used to work for them it, it got them so far really it got far. Them, it yeah. got them so so First, they have a faulty narrative where they believe they can get to the point where they learn, you know, they, they get beat, lick their wounds, study up, and then and then beat all their competition. And then level up, rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat. Well, even that narrative isn't true because when you get to a certain point, that narrative doesn't scale because nobody wins all the time and the competition is too fierce. And so that actually is kind of an amateur mindset, by the way. It's like for people that have that mindset that you're just going to practice up and win all the time, like that's not, that's, no, that's not it. But then, but then also... If they, if you got feedback during the during the soft part of that trajectory, which is learning to be recreational and low level league players, which is usually the easier part of the journey, uh, you might go on a side quest that, that got you to where you could beat your friends, and then it got you to where you beat those league players, and then it's hard to let go because it's like, well, that's always been my secret weapon. Is I just go and practice my fundamentals until I can beat the next level of player. It's like, well, that not only does that narrative not scale but that but that side quest doesn't scale either and there's going to be a point at which it starts to break down and so in the end yeah you i guess you have to be self-aware am i getting better and if you're not you've got to get you've got to be you've got to be you've got to make it you've got to be curious and not 
you've got to be curious as to what are the real reasons why I'm stuck and, and try to get feedback. I mean, you can talk to me. You can email me, info at mnpoolbootcamp.com. You can go on to AZ Billiards. You could post a video of yourself playing and get other people to review it for free on AZ Billiards. You could take, I mean, there's a million things you could do. And and you could talk to road partners, go to a tournament with a good player and talk to them about your experiences and your thoughts and what's going wrong. And, you know, of course, the better the player you're talking to, usually the I don't want to say the better the info, but like, I'd say that your hit rate on getting fortunate with good pieces of information gets slightly better as you're dealing with people that have been through more. So anyway, I don't know. So those are, I just wanted to talk about the uh, the reason why people might fall in love with their side quests is because it worked for a while. Okay. Yeah, that's an awesome point, Tim. Yep. Yeah, that's my, that's, I've experienced that and it smacked me in the face and it's just, it's hard, it's a hard lesson, but you just learn it and keep moving forward and fortunate I learned it and, and keep trying to learn it and keep trying to remember it and yeah I, I think it's awesome and and just to be accountable you know on my own it's like I've I've kind of gone down side quests if I've if I've ever been stuck it's because I was unfortunately too successful in the local level <laughs> and so that like you like you it was very successful for a long time with what you did well and so I was I was very successful with what I did which was you know mental game, game management, cue ball and pattern play, like, and moving and stuff. Like, I just do a very good job with, like, you know, extracting the maximum out of my game and, and fighting, you know, and, and really, you know, running out the balls with, you know, good patterns and good cue ball and good game management, good decision making. Like, those are all my strengths. And so when I'm playing amateur players, even tournament players, like, they give me opportunities. And then if I run the balls out cleanly and compose myself and don't make unforced errors and and move good and keep generating opportunities like I seem like I get there a lot but when I play you know not just Conrad or Ralph but just anybody that's like a real real strong player like a professional level player like those things don't win it for me like that's the price of admission you know what I mean running the balls out well doesn't mean ha 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 I'm gonna run out well and you're gonna mess up and then I can just win it's like nope they're going to do this. They're going to run out just as well as I do. And then it's going to come down to other areas that I might have neglected because, you know, I didn't need a big break when I was winning local tournaments. You know what I mean? Yeah. I could, I could, I could spot people to break and it didn't matter because they don't run out that many racks from the 10 ball break. And, and, and so it, it just doesn't really matter. I could, I could break dry every rack. And, you know, I played a money match a year ago uh, where I broke dry like a, a lot of the time and barely ran a rack off my break and I still won the match. But it's like, yeah try that against Tyler Steyer. That ain't going to work. You yeah. know, that, that dog don't hunt. So, yeah. So those are, I mean, I've been, so, so that, but I try to do the same thing that you're talking about, which is I look in the mirror at what, what it stands between me and my goal. And I understand that, you know, my break, my jump shot, my striking, you know, these things are critical. And, uh, and I know that. And what I said, I didn't really learn much this tournament. I guess I shouldn't say I learned that. I think that I was on the right track with those areas of my game. And, and I've, I'm proud of that I've made some improvement and uh, hungry to keep making more. So, good. Yeah, that's it, man. I think it's good. All right. Well, let's see. We've already kind of told some funny road stories. We know that I'm not going to go hustling in Poland anytime soon. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm going to go sneak up on those Polish. Never take my game public in Poland. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else, Josh? Anything else on your mind? Well, no, we, no, we just I, I just, we had a fun time, Dom. It was it was there was a lot of challenges, but but it was fun. So it's cool. Hope, hopefully, 
people are listening, they got a little bit of taste of some of the stuff we went through and some of the stuff that was good and a little bit challenging and, and fun and funny. And yeah, it's cool. Sounds good. Well, uh, listen, everyone, thanks for tuning in and uh, feel free to reach out questions, comments, uh, questions that you want us to take on and grapple with, uh, like, uh, like the elevator doors. We're ready. So, all right. Catch you guys next time.